Hello, you are listening to Stark Contrast, a Game of Thrones podcast at Movie Fail. I'm Josh Rosenfield, here with Soren Howe. We're going to talk about Season 6, Episode 9. Um, I think it's bad. It is Battle of the Bastards. I have seen The Battle of the Bastards. I have seen The Battle of Bastards. I've seen, you know, countless numbers of iterations of this title, but I think it is Battle of the Bastards. Battle of the Bastards. All right. So there's no the before it. I thought there was. I don't think so, no. People people always love putting the in front of titles that don't actually have it. I realize that I might have done that too. Yeah, that has a but, name, doesn't it? Is it? Does it? Either that or it's it's been a well-documented, it's a well-documented phenomenon. Because people do it like all the time. Yeah. And it's it's weird because and the other thing that's kind of frustrating is when you want it like grammatically when you're writing something about like save the Hobbit or the Lord of the Rings, and those already in the title and you're like, it's it, sometimes you depending on the context of the sentence you might want to write like the the, um, but of course that's incorrect. So then it feels weird to make that part of the grammar of the sentence because you don't want to use it. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's very strange. And then the other yeah. thing too is like something like this that doesn't have. Um, a the in it and then you added the before it and then it feels like it's part of this title but it's not yeah it's very weird um, yeah e- <laughs> look at that even I wrote in uh, last week's article I wrote the battle of the bastards but yeah it is just battle of the bastards I'm pretty sure yeah. in any case um, this was not a title that had a lot of meanings at all oh no I can't even I mean <laughs> yeah, we, yeah we talked about all season and we've talked about a lot of, you know different ways that episode titles can either have uh, very broad kind of metaphorical meanings or very specific individual meanings. Uh, this certainly is is an example of the latter. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, Absolutely. You know, it's, it's, it's the Battle of the Bastards, uh, which is, by the way, really such a cool name for... <laughs> for a battle. Uh, you know, the alliteration obviously is, is very uh, enjoyable, and I love the idea that in this universe... Uh, things and events just kind of get cool names like that. Like well, you were talking I was going to say, how- this sounds like something that people would talk, like, unlike the Red Wedding, which I, I know people would talk about it as have, having had happened, the, um, I'm sure the grammar of what I just said totally makes sense. Um, the Red <laughs> Wedding, like we talked about last time, or maybe it was a couple of episodes ago, never felt like, the like, it, in universe, it seemed like a weird thing to call it. It was just shorthand that, that fans seemed to use. Um, to me, like that's what it felt like. Whereas Battle of the Bastards sounds like absolutely what you would call this, um, and the way they would talk about it, say ten, twenty, thirty, hundred years from now in the Game of Thrones universe. So yeah, I'm really into, definitely into the title here, and I, I definitely had that in my head as I was watching what was going on. Yeah, um, I do like the idea. You know, just the idea that this um, maybe just because of the medieval setting, but the idea that these kind of grandiose events get instantly mythologized mm. by people in a way that you know like we it's a phenomenon that we don't really have in our worlds like if sometimes you'll have something like you know like when we say 911 we know what that means right yeah we um, talked about that but that's that's in reference to kind of a literal description of you know the event it's the day it happened and it's become shortened obviously no no one really says September 11th anymore um, right, exactly. Or the, world, or the World Trade Center attacks or whatever. People just say 9-11 and they get it. Uh, but a sort of... Uh, and maybe it's just because, uh, you know, when we think about kind of big world events these days, they're usually so horrible that, that kind, you know, pu- giving them kind of a, <laughs> a name like that 
is a little uh, insensitive and inappropriate. <laughs> but well, yeah, and we also aren't living in this world where like it is that horrible. You know, these kind of things are terrible, but we. But they're um, also like, it's just a fact of life that there are going to be battles well, like this. And yeah, I mean, it's a fact of our life too, though. Like this stuff. That's happens true, but all we don't want it to be. <laughs> we don't, but I don't think they do either. I think. Well, maybe your average soldier is probably not itching to go out and fight over and over and over again for random causes, um, which is, I guess, part of the, the, uh, the pushback on a lot of the you know joining forces and getting together kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I definitely got that. It's interesting that we're because we're operating from the perspective of in this world it's normal to do that. But I wonder if the average person feels that way, or if it's just like we never we never heard anybody call it this. And if they did, I don't know who would have called it that. Um, it's certainly I don't know that we would hear that from a common person. Maybe you'd hear it from like Melisandre ominously saying that in the background or something. But you wouldn't hear. I, I just wouldn't imagine people would necessarily call it that unless they were. To mythologize it in the context of like the play that we saw, for example, but well, even that looks of. like that didn't like... happen till years later. Well, I'm, yeah, but I'm thinking of like you know bards or mm. or playwrights or whatever, or the you Where know are the, the sorts bards, of people. What? Where are the <laughs> bards? Like, like there's that's no... a good question. I feel like we have we've definitely seen people playing music um, in the past. We've seen people playing like they played um, the range of Castamere. Obviously, yeah, yeah, there was yeah. that band. They but played like, it at you know at Joffrey's wedding too, I think. Yeah, but like yeah, the but wandering like, bard who like tells stories of what's going on in the universe just doesn't seem to. Not on the show. There is there are definitely bards in the books because there's a bard who plays. Uh, he's a he's the character who uh, Littlefinger pins Lysa's murder on. Um, whereas in the show he just says it's a suicide. So I know there are bards oh, in this universe, I guess, but we don't. Yeah, you're right. We don't really see that kind of archetype on the show that much. What's funny is their fingerprints seem to be on things like stories seem to be propagated. It's just not clear how they're getting there. Yeah. Exactly. It's, Except it's by, a good point. by word of mouth, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. You never really, yeah, you never really, you know, have characters. Characters walk into bars on the show all the time, but you never really see someone like strumming a lute or whatever and singing about the events, which is such a cool thing to have happen on a show like this. It's weird that they've actually never gone, gone there. It is. I mean, one of my favorite scenes in, uh, in The Witcher 3. Did you play The Witcher 3? No, because I don't have a PlayStation, but that's, you know, w- when I do, fingers crossed, uh, well, we'll have enough money soon. Um, oh, right. That's certainly well, one I, that you've, you've hyped up for a very long time. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I've hyped it up for a long time, but my absolute favorite scene in the... Like, this isn't ruining anything for anybody who's worried about spoilers, but there's a scene where you're in a tavern, and there is a person on stage singing, and they're singing about it takes a little... I, I don't know if it's evident from the start, but the story is about the main character because the main character has become such a mythical figure. And it's so weird. And also his best friend in the story... His, one of his best friends in, in throughout the series is a, is a bard as well. But this is somebody else who's just singing about these two sort of mythical characters. And the way she describes them... Is, first of all, the song is beautiful. It's a great scene. It just sits there for like five minutes of just this song going on and people walking by outside and stopping to listen in the window. It's crazy. It's such a good scene. Um, but she also, the way she's referring to the characters is she's referring to them by their monikers. They're sort of, um, uh, their epithets, you know, the their descriptors. Like she's like the white wolf and the whatever. Not not the actual, um, it's, like, it's like the blackfish. It would be like talking about the blackfish as opposed right. to talking about Brynden, right? So it's that weird abstract thing and it must be so surreal to be that character when they're talking about this 
you know, <laughs> these sort of, you know, almost Romeo and Juliet kind of, kind of character. It'd be like Romeo and Juliet listening to that story. <laughs> be like, hey, this is about us. This is weird. Um, and it's there's no real point to like plot wise. It's, that doesn't really serve a point. And that kind of moment I think is is missing a little bit from the Game of Thrones universe, especially since it's so integral to, as far as I know, medieval news spreading and that's how things got around at least if if uh, fantasy television and film is to be believed yeah well this is what we talk we've been talking about all season it's we we spend so little time with like the commoners mm. uh, although this season this i think it's been a bit better on that this yeah and this season has improved upon that but it's what you're talking about is a great example of something we miss out on because of that i think we never really see the world from that perspective and you know where we, stuff like bards you know they they belong to that part of the world and what's so frustrating is there's so little time, I guess, and so that's because yeah. I was cutting around. Uh, I I don't know that there actually is little time, but they feel it seems like they feel rushed. Um, but just as an example, you know that scene with Yara and Theon from a couple of episodes ago when they're in the bar, it just immediately cuts to their conversation and their interactions. It doesn't really, um, it you know, in a scene in a movie or consider like uh, what comes to mind are are scenes from. Uh, the bars in the Fellowship of the Ring. There's a lot of setup to those where they sort of you get a view of all the people in the bar. It gives you a or pub. It gives you a sense of the kind of character that's been attracted to this sort of seedy joint or a more happy area. Um, there's like a moment of just pure dancing in that in the Fellowship of the Ring and towards the beginning in the Shire. Um, and that all happens just to set the tone of what kind of environment they're in. There's in in Game of Thrones, they find the fastest way to set up the environment is be like, oh, naked women. It's sort of a brothel-y type place. All right, conversation, and then they just <laughs> kick off. There's no, there's no sort of tone setting except for that, which is sort of the general tone of all of Game of Thrones. So it's not really distinct. Um, so yeah, but th- that's a good a good example of just a, a moment where they could have done that if they had taken a little bit of a like a breath and let it sort of come out. Um, the one other thing, though, I want to say, and we'll get into this in a lot more detail, I'm sure, but this isn't just mythologized in the title and in sort of what we would imagine people describing this battle as. Because, um, of course, the people who wrote the title, that's that's non-diegetic, right? That's outside of what's going on in the thing. We're not sure if that's a title that comes after the battle or if that's, like, far in the future or what, you know, or who, who would mm-hmm. ever call it this. Um, but even in the context of how it's filmed, which, again, is not the characters, but the way it's filmed, um, and that's why this episode is so interesting and why it's just a very interesting episode is it's actually filmed in a way that also mythologizes it, that also makes it into something way more than just a realistic sort of fight. It has these elements that make it feel larger than life, almost mythic. Uh, yeah, definitely. I, I mean, certainly we'll talk about the filmmaking of this episode because holy shit, um, <laughs> you know, wow. But <laughs> this is, but, but uh, yeah, we'll go into more detail about that. But I, I agree with you; it has a very, um, not exaggerated quality, but a uh, a larger than life quality, even on a show like this. Absolutely. Uh, and this goes for both you know, both the battle, titular battle of the bastards, and the uh, battle in Marine. Oh yeah, yeah, that was is, a. Uh... Yeah, and it, what's funny about it is, it it feels a bit like like broadly, it feels a bit like Lord of the Rings in that way where. There are little lapses in logic or little lapses in what you might think would make sense for a battle, but the moment seems to work despite that because, and there's a couple of those throughout, and we can talk about that because there's at least one of them I know it bothers me, but at the same time, the feeling it elicits of, you know, 
well, we're gonna about to get into marine, but the idea of like, for example, three dragons just sitting in the sky, and nobody doing anything about it. it it's still, it's the imagery of it, something we've never seen before. This incredibly impressive epic feel that just it seems to have its own importance, and it's almost like someone's retelling the story to us. And they were like, and then the dragons just hovered there for 10 minutes. You know, like, that didn't actually happen. But it, <laughs> it feels like when they shoot it like that, or if they slow things down, or however, different, all the different camera techniques and, and filmmaking te- techniques they use in this episode, um, it feels like a retelling of, a, of an epic battle as opposed to the actual, like, somebody on the ground with a camera filming it in real time. And so it's kind of cool. Yeah, it- and this is that's something that, that this show so has resisted forever, basically, because the show has always been the mission statement of the show has always been like this is how it would really happen. Yeah, getting getting down into the grime and the grit, and you know, being but you can the do end. that and still, you know, exactly. That's I think what this show, even as far back as like Hard Home. Yep. I think that's what the show is now beginning to understand is that you can be, you can embody that kind of epic fantasy tradition, um, while still kind of more than nominally subverting it um you can be as uh epic as as you know kind of played out as that word is now uh, as you want to be and it's not uh it doesn't mean that you are because of that playing along with whatever kind of tropes you're trying to uh kind of get under the skin of mm. and this episode's probably you're right the best example it feels like a it feels like it's being something that's being retold and not something that is uh that we're witnessing as it happens which is interesting that we're getting that as the big climax of this season because such a big part of one of the storylines this season has been a play that retells the events of the series as right. we come to see them so that is in that that's really cool in that context of maybe i wonder if you could almost say that about more episodes this season i'd have to think about it but i think you're right especially this one it doesn't feel like the way that Game of Thrones typically feels like, which is, this is how it really happened. It feels like, well, maybe this is how it happened, maybe it's not, but this is how it felt like it happened. Well, it, it does a couple of weird things, So, um, and, and we'll talk about the, the battles in, again in, more specifically, but it sort of shifts from this epic feel down to down to the ground level, but even when it goes into the ground level, there's this feel... I, I keep thinking of Glory. Have you ever seen Glory? With um, um, Probably Broder. in like high school. So... What's glory and and films like it really or for, forget about glory? Um, although I don't know why that comes to mind. So because oh horses, that's why. Um, but or or you know any World War Two films like Saving Private Ryan that kind of thing, like the storming the beach. Actually, I think that's a really good analogy because it or, or a comparable scene because those moments feel very POV. Uh, and very in the mind of and, and we get those kinds of shots in this episode. Um, but it still feels, it still feels like, like we said, sort of mythic. And so I think, that, and like it's being retold. And so it's, and it's down and it's grimy and it's, you know, and everything else. But it's also, it's uh, almost, and that's another way that's been played out, but painterly, right? The way things are composed <laughs> and, and uh, like I said, occasionally f- slowed down. The way things are edited, there's an amazing, oh man, this episode has some amazing weird little tiny things in it they didn't need to do at all and it it gives a feeling of both of we get the perspective it doesn't feel grandiose in those moments but it does give us an immediate insight into these characters but again it feels like someone telling us about how they felt exactly well i mean there's one sequence i'm thinking of that will it's a a lot later in the episode and you know we'll start chronologically in a bit but um it'd be there's a sequence 
in the battle uh where John is getting like you know buried by mm-hmm. by soldiers, yep. and it become it becomes like and I can't believe I'm saying this about Game of Thrones. It's like an impressionistic sequence. Oh my gosh! Because yeah. you see just like kind of the like literally the impressions of kind of people and their silhouettes and their shadows just flickering you know past the light, the last you know bit of light that he can see. And I was like, I can't believe this is happening on this show. This show that has always been so you know honestly boring in terms of its filmmaking and we point out kind of the great examples but they are more the exception than the rule um i can't believe that the show is being so uh kind of bold stylistically uh and that that sequence is one of my favorite examples of filmmaking just on the show because it's exactly what you're talking about is we are getting kind of the uh what feels like the subjective point of view of a character um but we're not getting it through kind of blandly realistic filmmaking. We're getting it through much more interesting kind of abstract filmmaking. Yeah, uh, I, I'm probably not thinking of a specific um, painting. I'm probably making this up in my head, but I'm sure you can come up with something similar. But, you know, painting like sort of Dante going through hell, you can imagine sort of that kind of painting where someone, you know, this character struggling through these these different levels of hell, right? Um, from Dante's Inferno. Yeah, um, yeah. And you're getting the perspective of the character, this incredible suffering, this incredible, um, horrible sort of experience that is definitely that perspective, but also it's being told, obviously, through the painting and through the expression of the lines and the color. And so I think it's... That's the kind of thing that we're getting there, and I kept thinking of that. And I, there's another, there's another like, painting or idea that I'm thinking of that's not coming to mind, but it, it definitely felt like that, for sure. Um, but we keep talking around the battle, so we might as well start at the beginning and actually get to... Yeah. Meat of it. So well, we start in Marine, and we were talking a lot last week about whether or not this episode would be like the I entire know. battle. And uh, so when it started, in well, first of all, when the previously on had scenes from Marine, I was like, oh, uh, well, hey, that answers that, I guess. Yep. Um, and I was even more confused when they had scenes with uh, with Theon and Yara, uh, because I was like, they're how are they going to touch upon that? Yeah, right. What? Um, but no, we, we <laughs> they they did it quite successfully, I think. But we start in Marine, right where we left off. The Masters are attacking, and uh, so we actually get close. ice and fire. This, this. Um, yeah, it's the they get the Battle of Fire and the Battle of Ice, it's, and it's, it's so it's much awesome. more subtle than. than yeah, nobody watches says on the that. Wall. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's no like cheesy color palette switch, and it's no, not at all. Um. Um. So what's it, what's interesting about this scene that I I do want to get out before we kind of move on from it is that Tyrion mentions the wildfire under King's Landing. Yes, yep. Again. Yeah, I noted that. Um, which makes me think that it is uh, probably what um, yep. Cersei and Kyburn uh, were talking about last week. It is. They're reminding it us of it is. again. It, it must be, right? And because he's, and he's it, saying you know. it talking about how he doesn't want Daenerys to go down the same path, but I think Cersei's about to do that. And so he's about <laughs> yeah. to have his own relative who does something incredibly crazy. Yeah, probably. Uh, um, but no, it, the meat of the scene is that uh, Daenerys is, is saying to him, yeah, I'm going to just completely wipe them out, destroy them, and show them how powerful I am. And he mm-hmm. says, well, Liz, you know, obviously he doesn't stop her from destroying some of their ships. <laughs> she does that rather spectacularly. Mm. Um, but he is extra... Advising uh, caution and restraint... And well, it ends up serving her well, right? Because eventually, exactly. when she gets to counting the ship, she's like, oh, that was probably a smart idea. <laughs> exactly. um, but it's really cool. I mean, I, this is what I love about this is we expected 
her showing up. So oftentimes when she shows up, it's like a big statement and then it ends an episode and it's not really followed up on. It's just now she has people following her. When she showed up last episode, and I really liked that. We liked that. Or, yeah, we liked that entrance a lot. Some people didn't. I thought it was Mm -hmm. a cool way to end her little arc there. Um, It's sort of a transition right into the next part of the plot, which is she shows up and the city's under attack. And she's pissed off. And she's mad at Tyrion. It feels like she's mad at Tyrion. And what's so cool, I love this exchange, because her... She's angry that the city's under attack, but as soon as he explains why it's under attack and what's going on, and makes and basically is saying, yes, things are bad, but I did I did what was right, uh, even if it led to battle. Like that was I, you know, I followed exactly what you wanted me to do. I did this, everything that followed your very distinct no slavery guidelines. I would negotiate it as much as possible while staying in those bounds. And now they're trying to destroy us with catapults and ships. So, and she <laughs> she sort of just accepts it she's not you know she's not loving it but she's like all right you know um she would have been more mad if there was peace and he had she had found out that he had sold her out to the slavers you know what i mean so like it's Mm -hmm. very clear here that regardless of the consequences because she's done this a thousand times where she's like no slaves and then it ends up biting her in the butt anyway so it's the same thing but she's now she can trust Tyrion even more even though what he did did technically lead to kind of an all-out siege. <laughs> um, but only technically. I mean, you know, the Masters probably would have attacked anyway, given Daenerys's previous, you know, zero-tolerance policy. Um, but yeah, I mean... I Maybe, but he could have He could have totally sold her out. I mean, imagine if Cersei had been he could have in charge sold her of out, this, or really any other character in Game of Thrones um, <laughs> from that family or from, you know, just most lords. Um, but Tyrion's clearly got a very clear vision, and it aligns largely with what um, Daenerys wants to do. And you see for the rest of the episode, he's absolutely standing by her, um, and she defers to his judgment, uh, clearly taking a lot of it into her own hands, but she does defer to his judgment on a lot of things, or at least takes his advice. Um, and it's because he won that trust of following what she, what she morally believes, even if logically or logistically it's not exactly the most... It's not the easiest path. Um, so yeah, I really, I really like that. Uh, so then we go right to uh, Daenerys and, and everybody meeting the three yep. masters on uh, some kind of cliff or whatever. Yep. And the masters are very, you know, snooty and haughty, and we get the classic exchange where they talk about surrendering, and they say, mm-hmm. no, we're talking about your surrender. Yeah. <laughs> and they smirk. I mean, it's a very, obviously, it's an oft-used... Uh, Oh yeah, cliche, but uh, you know. I did roll my eyes here, just because like Daenerys, I feel like she's done this a thousand times. Yeah. <laughs> like, how are you gonna serve me? Ha ha! You don't realize I was really the power player here. Yeah, you know? and, and like this scene always goes, a dragon shows up to kind of back her up. Um, I love that she leaves on the dragon, uh, for you know Tyrion and, and Missandei and Grey Worm to continue the negotiation. Yep. Uh, that's that's such a funny detail. Well, yeah, and it's like what are they gonna say after that's that? happening while they figure out what they're doing yeah which is great um <laughs> but uh you know so she flies away on drogon the uh, the only thing that bothered me about this is what happens next which is that the other two dragons yeah. just break out on their own um it doesn't seem like it looks like because they're loose remember so all she had to do was break the door did she break the door it's either she breaks the door or they maybe they un- unbolted it or whatever because it doesn't they, look like, like burst they... out yeah, because it, it looked to me like they just burst out, like not the, not even the door, but like one of the side 
walls? Oh, no, I assumed um, it was the door. It didn't look like where the door... Uh, maybe I'm wrong. It didn't look like where the door was, from what I remembered, but... See, we it, don't know in why, any like, case, they I did mean... this set this up, because, like, there's this whole in-between part where she... Instead of trying to kill everyone, she listens to whatever Tyrion's plan is, and then they sort of come to a middle on whatever that was. And we don't know. So we don't really have an idea what's going on. Um, my That's issue true. with this isn't that they get out, it's that there's, like, all the buildup of the conflict between those dragons and Daenerys and just a whole chunk of the beginning of the season seems to be kind of irrelevant. They don't seem to have any issue just taking orders from her. I, and I don't fully understand that because the only person who she chained them up left and then the only one and then like left them in the dark, which is like a horrible thing to do to any animal of any sort, except for a bat, maybe. And uh, <laughs> uh, Tyrion is the one who, who undid the chains. So why would they listen to her? I mean, last time it looked like they were ready to eat her. Yeah, they did kind of drop that thread. They, maybe they did, and then chalk... this, it was cool, but, you know. Maybe you can just chalk that up to Drogon being there, and it's, you know... The, kind the alpha of, dragon. Uh, yeah, exactly, you know, and she's obviously imprinted on them to some degree, so maybe just, like, the energy and adrenaline of the moment was enough to to rally them and, and get them back. You know, because obviously that's not going to happen <laughs> right, right, right. when they're just sitting in a cave. Um, so, you know, it's fine. I mean, what it leads to, obviously, is this great great scene of her torching the ships so it's whatever i'm it's it's worth it yeah um so i was thinking about the budget for this must have been crazy it's not even the main battle oh. of the episode um <laughs> so that was kind of cool uh just just to think about uh the, so it, it does sort of call to mind this weirdness of dragon riders why do they need to be any dragon riders it seems like Drogon maybe needs to be ridden and then leads the other ones but why do the other two need dragon riders it seems like they're all pretty I guess much Maybe just like a symbolic thing, I guess. Maybe they split up. Maybe they, they only probably really they must follow. not. They, they clearly don't need all to be to be ridden, but yeah. But I if mean, you yeah, want them right. to if do they, specific they, things. You might need someone guiding them. So, like, if you want three exactly. dragons to go three different places, you need three different people on them. Yeah. If yeah. you want them to flock together, you you could just have one, I guess. Um, but I think it was really cool. This is the first time we've seen them all together in one place, and they're huge now. Um, oh, and they look so. I mean, we we kind of. We harp on the dragon effects occasionally because sometimes they look good and sometimes they do not look good mm. at all. Um, this is an example of them just looking fantastic. And you can tell... I, I saw a funny comment the other day that was like... Um, I don't remember if it was after this episode specifically, but it, it must have been because it was like, well, now you know why they were killing off direwolves all season. It's because they needed the money for this episode. Right, <laughs> and it should be mentioned, Ghost continues to be completely absent from <laughs> he's, he's, all of John's shows. That was... John oh, my story God. Lines. I couldn't believe he wasn't in this battle at all. Nope. I mean, if you're thinking about, you know, in your assets, your relative assets for this upcoming battle, and you're short on them, you know that you are, uh, your gigantic wolf may, might be someone you want to bring to battle. Yes, um, but if you're thinking about your assets as far as how much money you have to make the episode, uh, and you're trying to figure <laughs> well, out how yeah. many extras you can digitally add in, um, you might go, you know what? <laughs> We got a giant. Enough with the wolf. All right. We did the dragons already. People won't notice. And honestly, you know, it wasn't until I read a review afterwards and somebody had mentioned it. And I went, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Well, because Ghost hasn't even been on screen since the beginning of the season. Basically irrelevant and has been irrelevant. The one thing Ghost ever did was attack the white, right? Yeah. Like I guess he snarl he's like snarled at people and got before it gotten them to back off. Yep. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh. 
Did they even bring him from the wall? It's not clear. Because I don't think we've seen him since then. There's no evidence to say one way or another. He could show up <laughs> next episode and who knows. Um, it, it's absurd, and I don't really understand the... Like, they seemed so important as this connector. Or they seem to have some sort of meaning uh, in the context of the story, but they really don't, though. Because uh, I figured, you know, your wolf goes and then it's a harbinger of your death. Nope. Because uh, Sansa's died, uh, was the first one to, to be killed. Um, whereas Shaggy Dog, you know, was killed and then Rickon not long after. Uh, mm-hmm. It represents a break with the Stark name. Nope. Sansa's probably the most, she's the Starkiest of the Starks. There's, and she lost her wolf early on. It means nothing. It's a completely irrelevant. It means not. It's a. They mean nothing in the context of the story, which is too bad, because they're really cool. Um, but this entire litter of uh, of direwolves apparently had no real meaning. Uh, you know, and you always expect them to show up to defend certain characters at certain times. Rickon's dies off screen. We don't even know. Um, and uh, Ghost wasn't there to help John for obviously reasons that he's. Uh, chained up or whatever the, the case was but it's just frustrating to see that happen over and over again where you're you're like i know you have a giant wolf somewhere who's supposed to be like this supersized wolf who's loyal to you and for some reason is never there to i mean i was weren't we talking about this what would be cool is if the the dogs from uh, ramsey's kennel ended up fighting in this big like brawl with um with ghosts but you know, of course, that didn't happen because that would have been a crazy CGI budget for no particular reason other than it's cool. <laughs> <sighs> what can you do? Um, so, so yeah, I like this, but I did like this this intro with um, with with Marine. Uh, and do we get anything else here? Do we come back here later? Yeah, because we have Yara and uh, Theon. Yeah, so that's in a little bit. So why don't so we're get, we we but travel it's... over to Westeros briefly. Yes, uh, we have uh, Ramsay and, and some people meeting with John and Sansa, and and their people, including including um, uh, oh God, Lysa, no, Lyanna Mormon. Yep. Um, I love that she was there too. She's just they, sitting there scowling in she, the back. Exactly. Yeah, they don't really do anything with the fact that she's like you would think Ramsay would make some comment, uh, but they don't really go there, which is an interesting choice. But it's also an interesting choice to have her be there at all. So okay. Well, and and he does he does make a disparaging comment about the lords who betrayed him and includes Lyanna in that. That's when we see her, I think. So that's true. That's kind of like it's more of an affirmation of her position. Wow, I get to betray. You know, I'm I'm important enough that I've betrayed. You you didn't <laughs> say like people who betrayed me and a girl, a little girl. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a it's cool that she's there just scowling in the background because they easily could have just had her in a bit role. Um, and actually, I don't know if you saw this, but there's a little a little nod to House Mormont a little bit later too. Uh, at the end of the battle, but I'll um, we'll, we can get there later. Um, yeah, we'll get there. I'm not sure. Yeah, um, I love my favorite thing about this scene is uh, John has never been a particularly he's never shown himself to be particularly bright. Um, nope. obviously he's very, you know, loyal and, um, and a, a great fighter and he, and, uh, and compassionate, but, you know, he, uh, he, he has, he's very principled, uh, but, you know, intelligent is not a word I would ever nope. use to describe Jon Snow, but his little gambit here with, with Ramsey is brilliant. I was screaming. I loved it when he gets, when really? he, uh, when he gets Ramsey to, uh, decline uh, one-on-one combat and he says oh so now your men know that you won't fight for them but 
that they'll fight. They have to fight for you. It was, I mean, obviously, it didn't really have any significance yeah, to well, how the battle no went, but it was. It. I was like, oh, that's brilliant. Here's 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 what I think this scene was really about. I think this was all. See again, I'm really and I'm really glad that we get this scene a little bit like just after this, and I think that's also important. Um, I'm telling you, my theory, female ascension. This is what this. This is where we're oh, going. We with get this. the. We get to see that just explicitly that later in the episode. Later in the episode, but even here with Sansa, I mean, this whole episode is all her, um, where they're like beating their chests and doing this these dumb games, and Sansa basically just pieces out. She says, "Was nothing to do with their idiotic, you know, chest beating. It's just a complete waste of time." Um, she, but so she's like, chest, she is chest beating in her own way. She's just doing it in a very. No, she's uh, just like, I don't have time for. Why are we doing this? Like, no, she says, she says, hey, she says, hey, you're gonna die tomorrow. And, I mean, that's and and rides off. That is its own form of chest beating. I sure. suppose, but I just, I don't know. I feel like the this like back and forth, all just to prove, oh, I'm, re- you know, you're not. You're not man enough to face me. Oh, I'm really strong because that's I, that, you know, but, like, no, it's but the idiotic. point of that isn't the point of that wasn't you're not man enough to face me. It's, uh, you know, uh, so you'll send people out to die for you, but you're not willing sure. to die for them. And of course, that's exactly what happens in the battle. Ramsay spends the entire battle just watching from afar, um, whereas John is right down in the thick of it. So I don't think it's about you know proving that you're man enough as much as it's proving that you're you know. I, I'm not sure that I'm just not sure that you know necessarily. I think it's significant obviously. that two men continue continue to talk about this complete completely inane conversation that, as you pointed out, goes absolutely nowhere and has no real purpose except for to make him embarrassed. But again, it doesn't really ultimately do anything at all. Um, and that Sansa is the one who steps in to be like, "All right, enough of this. Like, we're going to kill you more because we're about to fight." She doesn't say enough of leaves. this. Hmm? She doesn't say enough of this. She says, "We're going to kill you tomorrow." I'm saying she's. I'm not not verbatim says that, but I mean like the tone of what she's saying is like this is a completely useless negotiation. We're not obviously nothing's going to come out of this, and then rides off, and then they continue to have their little pissing match because she she just has no interest in in their negotiation or what they're talking about, which is a good point. And the same thing happens a little bit later when they're having the conversation when you know internally in the camp. Um, there's a lot of those comments. Uh, a lot of that commentary going on that I think again I don't I'm not trying to explicitly tie it to gender but it's this like you know I'm you know this uh, self-aggrandizement that I think is very tiring and annoying to watch and Sansa's been watching everyone do it around her for six seasons now and since she was a kid you know before the show started so I think um, I think that's that's a very clear indication that she's you know it, compare this to Sansa from like you know season one where she would have just sat around listening to Ned Stark say stuff like that to people, and she did. Um, and, you know what I mean? It's it's just very different um, to see her do this now. And I do think it's, I, I do think that it's a little bit of commentary on these two characters. Um, and it's pride and a lot of other things that end up getting in the way and ends a little bit of, um, you know, absolutely no forethought and the rest of it that ends up, you know, getting John basically almost killed. He should be dead. He absolutely deserved to lose the fight later, and then the entire battle, I was just like, oh my god, you should just die. I, I'd never thought that before, but wow, you are a moron. Um, so, like, yeah, I don't know, I just, I definitely got that impression out of the out of, out well, what of this I, conversation. What I liked about this, what I liked about this moment and the way that I saw it is that, you know, they're both, it is a, uh, it, it is set up for the scene between John and Sansa later, the conversation that they have, because they are both trying to get inside Ramsay's head, 
and John doesn't know Ramsey, but he, the way that he perceives Ramsey is is this is as this kind of you know, uh, uh, you know, puffed up um, egotist. I feel like because he doesn't really know him, he sees him as this guy who's just you know, oh, you you sit on your stolen throne and you think you're so great. Well, let me get you know, let me kind of get inside your head and mess with that and and play up. Uh, how great you think, you know, play with how great you think you are and try to tear that down a little bit. Whereas Sansa, who, you know, lived as his captive for months on end, uh, has a much better, she kind of gets that it's not really about ego for him as much as it's about, like, power. Mm-hmm. And uh, John isn't really displaying necessarily that he has power over Ramsay because Ramsay ultimately knows that uh, he has the bigger army. He has no real reason to fear John, despite these kind of, you know, mind games. Uh Instead, what Sansa does, and the you know best move that she has in this situation is to say, uh, "I'm not afraid of you," and not just to say, "I'm not afraid of you," but we're going to kill you tomorrow. And then she leaves. And she, what she's saying to Ramsay, who obviously Ramsay knows her very well for the same reason, um, she, what she's saying to him is, "Despite everything you've done to me, and you know you, sh- you can tell that she means it. Despite everything that you've done to me and everything that I know about you." I don't have any fear that we're going to lose tomorrow. And I think that, more than anything John said, uh, gets in Ramsey's head. And Oh, absolutely. Well, I don't know if it gets in I don't know if it gets in his head. Well, I think it, he just smiles when she rides away like he's into it. it. He's weird. He's a really weird character. Um I mean it's the same thing happens when he's getting punched, you know, later on. It's not clear if he's like into pain, like that's a thing for him or if he's um, or if he's just happy that, yeah, that John that moment, is going we'll get crazy. to that moment later. That moment was so strange it was. in every way. But we'll we'll talk about that when when we get to it. But, but yeah, <laughs> so I I I think this I think Ramsey to me what what was telegraphed in that moment is that Ramsey felt like he had she wrote he felt like oh she's riding off in frustration I've irritated her I've bothered her you know like that was that was what I wanted out of this and what I think is great about it is that Ramsey is so he is full of himself and he is an ego I think he is an egotist in that he thinks he has everyone sort of in the palm of his hand and he does have control over them he does have power over them and so it's she says that to him and he's just like yeah like I'm sure I'm sure I'm sure I'm going to die tomorrow that really makes a whole lot of sense and what she's not making clear is that she's like I'm going to kill you and she doesn't say that but as soon as she said that, I wrote it in my notes well before we ever got to the scene where she, that is exactly what happens. She's very clearly threatening him. And he finds it amusing because, you know, why would he in any way be worried about Sansa? But she is the one who ends up killing him, and she is very confident that that'll happen one way or another. Um, it's not clear why she's that confident, and we later I guess we have a little bit of an answer as to why that is, but I think I think that's really what's going on there, is that he's completely underestimating her. Just as John does, just as every character has pretty much underestimated her, and um, she ends up getting the better of them. So that was that's what I got out of the scene. But what I really like about this too is that awesome shot of her riding away from the group. And again, that was really what cemented it for me. She is leaving this little, you know, congress of, you know, bravado and and going to do like her own thing, <laughs> you know. Um, so yeah, I just. But the, I mean, what it also is like the very act of leaving is a you know reclamation of power from Ramsay, and that's what this. It's a reclamation is. of power. That's what this power is all about. But to power me. isn't exclu- But power isn't masculinity. No, I'm not saying it is, but it is to you know in the world of Westeros and in this scene, they are 
tightly intertwined. But I, but I, when I'm talking about power, yes, it's a power move to leave, in that it's a power move of self reclamation and self governance and self. Um, she she like she's con- she's in control of her own everything. She has her own agency. That agency is probably the word I was looking for there. Uh, that's what I mean by power in that instance. Whereas John and and Ramsey are having a very different conversation, as far as I as far as I could tell. Um, well, no, they are, but it, what the way that Sansa enters that conversation, like you say, is to leave the uh, the very you know the very fact that she can go up to this man who was you know her captor, her rapist, uh, her abuser in any number of ways, and just say not just say you're gonna die tomorrow, we're gonna kill you, but you know she wouldn't have had to say anything. I don't think you know obviously that probably she frames it as a threat in saying that, and so the, mostly I think so it doesn't look like she's just running away. But because she says that and then leaves, what she's saying, what she's showing to Ramsey is basically, you no longer have power over me, and you've come to us and absolutely you no. Talking I agree about, with that. You were talking about you know you're talking about how big your army is and how you're going to destroy us, but um, no matter, despite all of that, none of that matters. You don't have power over me, and I can leave if I want to. Exactly. And it's no, you're a, totally. I I totally agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely. That's exactly how I viewed it as well. Um, I think it's just, to me, that's a very different conversation than what what was going on with Ramsey. Oh and, well, yeah, and certainly. Um, but in any case, uh, so also by the way, calling her Lady Bolton was a creepy, really yeah. creepy Oof. way to introduce that. Um, so then, oh, and then he makes that threat with the dogs. I was like, oh god, we're gonna have to see the dogs again. Except we did in a <laughs> in a bit of a different, a different context. Um, so I like this. So then we move to a strategy session. Um, we get Tormund trying to understand how strategy works in a battle. Apparently, <laughs> that's not a thing with the Free Folk. Uh, they yeah, no well, idea. they just kind of, you know, they just kind of run into situations and fight. That's all we've really ever seen them do, right. battle-wise. <laughs> Which um, and kind of blows you know, my mind. Like, there, some of them are former people from Westeros. Did no one br- nobody bring any strategy to the? Well, the, the specific example, what I actually, what I like about this is that the specific example is, um, that they're talking about is, like, the pince, is right. them coming around and attacking from the sides, but if you're attacking, like, the wall, that's obviously not an issue. Yeah, <laughs> it's exactly, just, it's irrelevant. It's just, the, you know, your enemies are in front of you at all times. Exactly. Um, so they didn't obviously say that, but I think I like what, I think that's what they're alluding to with Tormund there. That was a funny moment. Yeah, he's just completely baffled by it, and I like that. John has to keep simplifying it, simplifying it until he explains it. Like, oh, why, like, why did you just say that? Um, so yeah, that's great. Um, so this is a good, uh, a good scene. Does he talk to Sansa first, or he talk to Melisandre? He talks, uh, he talks to Sansa first. Okay. Um, so he talks to Sansa. This is an interesting moment. Um, yeah. So I think it's a very. I think it's an interesting. First of all, it calls on a you know a pretty well known. Um, phenomenon that certainly happens in Game of Thrones, but happens in the real world all the time where women end up getting boxed out of conversations quite frequently uh, when there's more than one man in the room. Uh, and I think that that's a, that's a, that's a very common thing uh, that happens. And so in this situation, there was absolutely like John didn't, it didn't even occur to him to be like, Oh, what do you think about what's going on? Because, you know, mm-hmm. obviously she's never fought a battle, but she's the only one who knows John and good tech, Good tacticians, which I don't believe John necessarily is, uh, have. Like, I, I don't know if we've I don't know if we've seen it in this show or in other places, but I'm definitely remembering moments where you know a good tactician will be like, well, you know this person, what do you think? You know, 
trying to get probably from Avatar. Avatar usually does good stuff like that. Um, <laughs> you know, like you know this one, this character best. You know this situation best, this city best. You know what's the best way to do this. Um, but that just never occurs to him. And so she really explains like Rickon's dead. Don't do what you know he wants you to do. And he's like, oh yeah, very. You know, like don't do what he wants me to do. Wow, what a what a great strategy. And he's she's like. I don't know how else to explain it. He's going to do something horrible and try and goad you into fighting him. And that's exactly what he does, and it's exactly what John falls for. Well, that's not, here's my thing with that scene. That's not exactly what she says. I kind of have a problem with the way this scene is written, because I like the setup of it, which is that she goes to him and she says, you didn't think to ask me like what right. I think he might do, and John, you know, to his credit, John says, you know what, you're right, I should have asked you. What do you think? Yes, he does, but yeah, she, sure. She doesn't really, like... What she basically says is, you're, you're, he, he, what she basically says is, in the way that John responds, you're right. He says, "Oh well, obviously." She all she says is like, "Yeah, he's gonna try and lure you into a trap, or like he's gonna let you think you have the upper hand. Um, don't get lured into a trap." And John is like, "Well, duh. If I know that there's a, and I'll be, you know, the this, the payoff for this scene is that John is is wrong and he does get lured into a trap. Right, of course. <laughs> right at the beginning of the battle. But you know, my my. By the way, the least, the most transparent trap that Ramsey Bolton has ever time. set. Of all time, <laughs> um, but it's it's it, my criticism isn't of Sansa obviously in this moment. It's of the way that the scene is specifically written. The specific dialogue that she's given is they don't really give her anything super valuable to say to John. Um, when see to me, should... it's it's that he's not listening. He's just like I already know that like you're not giving me anything useful. But I think she 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 basically frames the entire battle. In very vague terms, because she doesn't know exactly what's going to happen. Well, it's the and vagueness, I think, her. that gets to me. But it's like, you know, Sansa's absolutely right. She should know very well, the, you know, what he's going to do in this moment. And all she really, and obviously she's right, but all she really says is, like, he's going to try and trick you. <laughs> no, but he doesn't say, but that's what I'm saying. is Everything we just talked about earlier about their first encounter with, with Ramsay, uh, she outlines here, and that's basically you're not understanding what he likes to do. He likes to play with people, and he likes to mess with them. It's not about pride. It's about it's all the things that we talked about that were unsaid before. She says explicitly here, and so like that's the kind of person you're dealing with. And John basically ignores this. Says, "Oh, I already know what you're. You know, whatever. I know what you're, it's going to work. My my plan's great." And whatever, <laughs> and adjusts nothing. Because like when the battle started, I figured, oh, he maybe he listened to Sansa. Nope. No, his whole plan is to just, I don't know, stand in a line and look at Ramsey, and then, you know, the whole thing with Rickon happens. It's it's bizarre to me. Well, um, I mean, well, the Rickon thing we'll, we'll get to, but I also, like, that that's tough, because John doesn't really have another option in that situation, um, other than just let his brother be killed. Well, no, but I mean, it's sort of, sure, go with your plan, but be aware that there's going to be, like, it, it's going to shift, and when it does, don't do the most obvious thing, you know? Um, he's not that kind of of uh, tactic. The person you're fighting is not that kind of person. It's not that kind of strategist who's going to wear the most logical option or the best option is the best option because is actually the best option because it'll turn out that that's the one that he's anticipating you're going to do. And then you know he's thinking two three moves ahead of your your chess piece thing so that he can he can trap you. And I think that it's yeah I don't know I think that that's something that he just completely went over his head because, and I think, but this yeah. is, this is, by the way, this is what happens, you know, I, she tries to explain it, and then I would argue he sort of mansplains it back to her, like, no, 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 I understand that, I understand you're not supposed to, like, that's a very useful thing well, but also, being I mean, so completely useless. Eh, 
But also, like, you know, I, I'm kind of, I don't know. I mean, you're right, but I'm kind of with John on this one a little because in this moment, like, what is he supposed to do about it? What is he, how is he supposed to adapt his strategy to Ramsey's going to try and trick you? There's nothing he can really do in advance that will counter that. Even just saying, he's like... Only, his only recourse is to counter it as it happens. It is, but he doesn't... Clearly, he doesn't take any of this to mind. He doesn't take any of this. Well, to exactly. Heart. That's and that's ultimately what you know. And what, so and so the vindication has happened there. But 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 forget about that. Just in the moment, just being like, you know, like listening to it and really considering it. Maybe not having the because he, think about how much more powerful it would be if he sat there, he listened to her, and he was like, yeah, you know, that's. You know, he listened to her and just I don't know, just give some affirmation that he understands what she's saying and and says. You know, I'll I'll have to think about it and see, you know, and so that when it happens with Rick on this whole thing, you believe it's not his 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 I you know I know what I'm doing uh, attitude, uh, his pride that ends up getting him screwed. It's this despite all of his best intentions, he's just so overwhelmed with emotion, and to me that's not really what we got. It's I'm going to completely ignore what Santa said and also get overwhelmed with emotion, which is a little bit different and feels it makes me like John less because he just it to me he really didn't give weight any weight to what she said and didn't think about okay if we're dealing with that kind of person maybe I want to rethink the strategy or at least keep it in mind when I go out like that's the kind of thing I would well yeah but, say. I mean, but instead he just sort of laughs at her and moves on with his life he does, I mean the, his reaction is obviously not I'm not defending his reaction in this moment but what I am saying is that. Sansa's advice comes, is useless. <laughs> well, no, I'm not saying her, and I'm not even saying that her advice is useless necessarily. I'm saying that one, you know, what she's saying to John, John can't really change. It doesn't really change anything that John's going to do in this in the moment because what is he supposed? How is he supposed to change his plan to adapt to Ramsey being unpredictable? Um, necess- I don't know, man. And, and maybe an actual military strategist might have some thoughts about that. I yeah, no I idea. don't know. Yeah, who the hell knows? But uh, but you know, and second of all the way that this actually ha- ends up going down, the way that any of what Sansa says happens is that what he does to Rickon, and in that moment, you know, what is John supposed to do? I don't really... It, the sad moment, the sad part of the scene is that John can't really, uh, you know, respond to Ramsay in a in a strategic way because he can't just let his brother... He can't just let Rickon die. His options are to let Rickon die or to try and save no, him. No, right. He tries to Ramsey's saving trap. him is one thing, but what he does after that is so mind-blowingly stupid. Yeah, I mean, that's the yeah. issue. It wasn't trying to <laughs> save Rickon. I get that. You know, falling for that is one thing, but falling even further for, okay, I'm gonna rush and then force my whole army to basically just make the dumbest series of moves in order to, you know, support him. That's the issue that happens. But again. She says he's basically Rickon is dead. He's dead. He's dead. He's dead. He's dead. Imagine he's dead. It doesn't matter. He's dead. And when he dies, he's dead. And for some reason, it fills him with rage, like he needs to go do something about it. It's like Rickon will be as dead after the battle, no matter what you do to Ramsay, as he is now. He's dead, and it's awful. But like a good tactician should be able to separate that. If you just break down as soon as your comrade dies, like that's not how you become the general of an army. You know, like you have to be able to. Move no, you on. become the general of a, uh, the general of an army by burning your daughter at the stake. Apparently, yeah. <laughs> we saw last season, as, and it comes up again. Master tactician uh, Stannis Baratheon. There. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think that was that was just the frustrating part. And by the way, his entire plan, his entire strategy, we didn't see change, and it seemed to be predicated on the um, uh, pride model of Ramsay Bolton, not his, not a different model of Ramsay Bolton, which might have operated a little bit differently. I don't know what that strategy would look like because we never even saw that. 
Um, so she basically said, it pride's not what's going on here. Your whole plan is predicated on that. That's not how he operates. He operates in a different way. Like, I'm not the strategist. You figure it out. But, like, that's not going to work. And we don't even which, know if that would have worked because we never got to that point. What shocks me that, that Sansa didn't bring up or that, I don't well, I guess Davos wasn't, I don't know if, remember if Davos was there at the time, but that nobody brings up is that, like, you know, the last time someone tried to attack him, he, like, raided their camp at night and burned half of it to the ground. I'm surprised no one in that moment said, like, you know, Melisandre obviously wasn't there, but it, surely they must, someone there must know whether Sansa just from kind of being at Winterfell and maybe hearing, or I don't remember, I don't remember if Davos was still at the camp oh, at to the be time worried. that this happened, or if, or if he left after that camp got burned, but like, you know, I felt like someone should have said, hey, we should be on watch tonight because he will probably try something, and I'm also kind of surprised that he didn't, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> Yeah, I was a little disappointed in, in Ramsay. Uh, the one thing I liked about this battle is we finally got to see the magical Ramsay Bolton in action who seems to be able to do anything with absolutely no... You know, every time he wants to do something battle-wise, he ends up doing it. When he do- leads that little raid, when he beats Stannis, we never see any of it. So This finally. actually... You know what? This actually, honestly, this redeemed those scenes for me because the implication now going backwards is that he didn't actually have any part in all of that. He just watched from afar. Um... Like, I remember being so mad about that raid. Well, it's, from it's not last clear season. about the raid how he would have done He did that from afar? Well, like, I was so mad about the raid. Like, oh, so he's just able he's just able to sneak in and out with nobody noticing. But if the implication is he just sent people to do that, <laughs> right. then, I'm, then I'm less mad about the character. Because it makes, it makes him seem less invincible than he seemed in the past. Mm. Yeah, the invincibility was, was frustrating. But yeah, here we got a little bit of that. And the other thing is, you know, who knows who else he's kidnapped. You know, we only see who he's kidnapped in relation to the characters we care about. But, you know, every general has a, you know, a kid or a wife or a somebody to kidnap and uses bait mid-battle as well. He does it constantly. Why wouldn't he do it to them too? Mm. Who knows who else he's got locked up in his dungeon, right? Yeah. Um. So then we get this brief scene with Melisandre. Uh, which I really, really liked. Oh my for... god, so good! Well, actually, sorry, we get we get a scene just before this with Tormund and um, oh yeah, and, and, Davos, and Davos bonding, which was kind of cool because we've never really seen them together. Yeah, again, uh, the show being so good at just taking kind of random character pairings and and making some magic with them. Yes, and by the way, again, all the build up to the battle is really important. It's very different than I think we get we've gotten in the past, and this whole episode wasn't just one long battle scene, which is again very different. And I think we get that, you know, we get that a little bit in Blackwater. This is the beginning with the Hound, and they're all singing and yada yada yada. And there's you know there's build up to the Watchers on the Wall certainly, but it all is just that. And here there's a lot more sort of back and forth. There's these little scenes, and they do move the plot forward in some ways. Some are just character moments like this. Um, but what I like about this with Tormund and Davos is. You know, he's like, oh, I go for walks, and you're like, oh, this is sort of a meaningless conversation. But it leads to Davos going on this walk a little bit later and seeing Shireen's burnt pyre or whatever, the, the leftover, um, you know, the remains of, of her where she had been burned. And uh, so, like, it, it connects later. It's not just, like, a random fact that he doesn't sleep before battles and now it connected to this thing that happens a little bit afterward and that also justifies some of his actions in the battle where he really finally just accepts that he really has nothing left it's pretty much the closest thing to he had to a daughter and you know she's gone and so screw it I'll, you know I might as well die although here. it's still not clear whether or not he knew that she was dead you know beforehand because I think 
you know, I, I, the real reveal is that I think she was burned and that Melisandre was complicit. But when Melisandre comes back, I feel like he must have, without without them, I feel like he must have, you know, gotten that they died in the, as a result of the battle. Right, I think he knew she was dead. Like, yeah, but exactly. didn't we didn't we get that? Oh no, he just learned that Stannis died from Brienne. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I think when I think I think he probably did know that that she was dead. Uh, it's just the reveal now is that <laughs> of what ha- actually went down. Um, but you know, yeah, yeah. It's uh, I, I like this scene with uh, with Davos and Tormund. Um, I like that they talk about they kind of talk around the idea of of John being a king. Um, well, yeah, it's like, a cool I, idea know, though. You know, yeah, they... Uh, and it's funny, they, they think he's not a king, even though Melisandre was pretty confident he had king's blood. Yeah. <laughs> um, exactly, yeah. Although, I gotta uh, say, throughout this entire battle, that, that the, you know, as the battle happens, which we haven't even gotten to, oh my gosh, um, <laughs> when the actual battle happens, the whole time I'm going, this guy's supposed to be, like, the, the savior of, you know, Daenerys looks ten times... But, you know, I, I always figured John and Daenerys sort of similar sort of level of intrigue and, and ability and, and leadership and but you know what maybe not I don't know um, <laughs> so like yeah, he makes horrible decisions he gets his ass saved so many times through absolutely nothing he did you know being a great swordsman is one thing but there's so many times where somebody else ends up saving him or he ends up having to, having to have like dodged something accidentally or whatever it's, it's complete luck um, just a lucky guy but anyway so so this is a, it's a good scene with Tormund and Davos, and then we go to Melisandre and John, where we get two really cool moments. And the first is that um, I really like how down Melisandre is on the Red God. She's just so mm-hmm. she, this Melisandre is so much more. I, I really didn't like her in pretty much at all until until after Stannis died. He's, she's so much more interesting to watch now because her she, being an overconfident religious zealot's not interesting to me. Like especially since the show has so many of them, yeah. I don't care. Especially her whole like the thing, you know, the whole very the I'm so mysterious and and uh, you don't really know what's going on with me and uh, yeah, I have the power and you know the, that was her for like four seasons and, and it's it just, got old it's it got really I, I was done with it by like the second time we'd seen her i was like oh she's gonna get naked and oh she's gonna do some other you know <laughs> but who cares i just didn't care about it you know she just bored me um but then here you know she she's get she's got great lines this this uh season her when she finds out that you know the afterlife is nothing you know and all the rest of her her, her just crestfallen she doesn't she doesn't want to bring john back in the first place um so first, John's like, I don't want to be resurrected again. Just, just please, no. We're done with that. Yeah, I well, I love. You know, first of all, I love the concept of this scene. Just that, just the setup of that. The idea that because we haven't really seen how John's resurrection has kind of weighed on him. Yeah. This season, it doesn't seem. You know, th- there was an implication that it might have uh, changed him in some fundamental way, like you might imagine co- dying would to anyone. <laughs> um, but, but this is the really first, the first uh, indication or the first reference we get to. Um, his death and resurrection having an impact on how he, uh, on on his point of view. Um, I just love the idea of some of him of any character going to any character and saying, you know, if I die, don't bring me back. The idea that this this storyline has been developed to such a point where that can be a conversation that yep. characters have is is great because it's you know it's not exactly an archetypal you know 
dialogue exchange <laughs> in media. It's not something we see very often. Well, and also the idea of death is sort of a relief. Like, he doesn't have to deal with any of this anymore. You know, the, the strain <laughs> of having to... And that's what frustrates me so much about what he said earlier, where he's like, I'll protect you, Sansa. It doesn't, you know, I'll, you know... No, you won't. And she's, that's what she says. No one can protect me. That's ridiculous. You know, that's not mm-hmm. how things work in this world. No one protects anyone. Um, and that's exactly, you know, I'm, I'll protect you. And then his, his first plan of action is to completely abandon his plan, do something ridiculous and rash. And if Sansa had been around um, during that battle at all, probably would have been taken and captured and murdered by Ramsay and his crew anyway. Like, you didn't do anything to protect her. So, I don't know. So, he's... The the weight of responsibility, I'm sure he still feels, but um, I think he's just sort of done with every. You know, the, the weight of his father's legacy, the weight of being brought back from the dead, the weight of his reputation, the weight of his, you know, innate goodness, the weight of having to take back Winterfell, the weight of having to pro- quote unquote protect Sansa and the rest of it. I can see why you would want to be done with that. You know what I mean? Like I could have been done with this, and then you brought me back, and just don't do it again. <laughs> um so but then um, it's so interesting yeah, yeah. when they have this conversation about being brought back from the dead and he's like and she's like maybe you'll die again and maybe you'll have to bring you back again or I don't know and he's like what kind of god would do that and she goes the one we've got <laughs> I'm like oh man if only Melisandre from season 2 could hear this wow Yeah well what I love the idea pooper. of taking the I love the idea of taking the religious zealot character and giving her a crisis of faith. Oh my gosh, that's great. And not even a crisis, because she seemed kind of... Resi- the crisis of faith is kind of resolved, and now with the resolution she's come to is kind of similar to what we saw with Ian McShane a week or two ago. Mm. Um, the idea... Yeah, her perspective now is like, look, I don't know what the Red God's going to do. I don't really know what the Lord of Light's plans are. I can kind of, you know, draw certain conclusions from signs that I think he might give me, but ultimately, like... If he didn't want you to come back, then he wouldn't have made me able to bring you back. Exactly, so, yeah. You know, and that's why she says, the first thing she says to him is like, if you die, I have to try and bring you back. Right. You know, whether or not it works is up to the Lord of Light. And that's not my, that's not my choice, but I have to try and see if the Lord of Light still wants you to be alive, basically. Right. Um, Which makes me think, if, if that's if that's at all true, I don't know, who knows if it is, uh, then Beric Dundarian must be an extremely important person. Yeah, well, that's that, that has interesting implications for Beric Dondarrion for sure. Um, um, but I keep, I can't, I just can't help but th- I probably brought this up before. In The Witcher Three, there's a, there's a great side quest. Like there's a billion of them in the, the game, so hopefully I'm not ruining this for anybody. But there's this cute little side quest where you walk by these like this ruined house, and there's these two peasant characters who are standing there and they're sort of listening into this hole in the ground, or like it's like a little grate coming out of the ground. Um, and it's just like a like a, a house that's it's been like completely demolished, and there you stop and you talk to them and they're listening and they hear a voice coming up or they claim that there's a somebody telling them they need to collect things or they need to get things for this voice, and they believe it's a god right or they believe it's it is god or it's a god of some sort and you're like what, um, and so you can sort of help them or you can sort of go around and try and figure out what the hell is going on with this voice because your belief in the supernatural extends to monsters and not much else. Anyway, eventually, if you do the, if you can just help them and just do whatever this voice is saying, or you can go down, go around, figure out where it's coming from, and it turns out in the cellar there's this big like demon thing that's sort of just talking up a hole at them, and it's basically just getting them to get it food for for free. 
Um, <laughs> and it's not it's not a demon. It's like a monster of some sort. Um, and you can either kill it or you can sort of say, I'll keep your secret. Just don't, you know, abuse the the goodwill of these these peasants, you know, by making them freak out and think that there's a like a god living in this this building. Uh, and it's like this cute little reveal, but I just that's how I view the red god. Like the red god's just this like weird has the ability to talk through flames, has the ability to bring people back from the dead, but isn't like a god, just like an annoying demon that just seems to have certain things that make it that, that make it tickle its fancy, and so it decides to on a whim just mess with people. Um, oh, the Red God's a big Jon Snow fan, apparently. Well, yeah, and a, and a Barrett Dendarian fan, but, like... The know, Red God is, like, the most obnoxious whatever. TV show fan. Oh, my God, uh, it is. Oh, it's like, like Bat Oh, Knight. I can't believe you killed my favorite character! It's like Bat Knight from, um... Uh, from, whatever, Batman Brave and the Bold. Where it's like, he's, like, a super fan who can, like, change the reality of the Batman world and keeps putting Batman in all these different <laughs> situations because he's just like, now I want you to fight Aquaman, you know? <laughs> that's that's what uh, the Red God is. It's Bat Knight. Um... Uh, Just in case anyone was wondering, spoiler alert. <laughs> anyway, so that was my that was my little pitch. So Theon and Yara. Oh yes, yes. Uh, oh yes. Uh, yes. What a scene! What a scene! What a scene! I called it so early on. I just want to get credit it for it. So good. Oh my god. <laughs> I can't believe it. Oh man, my com- my notes for this are hilarious. It's just like I mean, it's ha- it's happening, right? It's like- happening. Yeah, I think we've been. We, I think Korosami kind of spoiled us, but um, you know, all I can think is if is is of our uh, you know season three or see early. I think more like season four uh, podcasts about the Legend of Korra, where I was like, uh, I feel like I don't. You know, it could happen. I feel like they've let they've opened a door where I can see them following this path. I don't think it's gonna happen, but I think that based on everything that's happened before, it's you know. It's a direction that they could go in, um, and then it happened, and I couldn't believe it. <laughs> and I was totally, I totally wrote it off as like sad fanfic that people were, you know, just clinging yep. to based on nothing in the show, just because they were sort of fetishizing the characters. Um, then I got behind it wholesale, and I was like, oh, it is totally <laughs> happening, and I'm so into it because the show's actually. My worry is that the show wasn't doing it, and they were just sort of, kind of like in um, Sherlock, they were just sort of putting characters together just because they could because they wanted to draw them naked um <laughs> but that's not what was going on at all that was very deliberate uh yep. and in the, this case um i think it's just it was so evident and the reason i knew it was going to happen was they just deliberately never talked about yara's sexuality until this season in that pub <laughs> uh or brothel whatever it is with theon and they're talking about daenerys and i'm like okay clearly they're setting up her sexuality for the purposes of this um yeah. and like Yara's straight up hitting on her throughout this entire scene, which I think is hilarious. Yeah, because like, it's not. Yeah, they're not even trying to. Yeah, it's not even a thing where like I feel like I'm reading into nope. their interaction. Not it's at like all. it's text. It is the text of the scene that that's what's happening. Yeah, and and um, it's not like she's being. It's not like when Tormund is sort of making eyes at Brienne. By the way, Brienne can teleport all the way down to River Run, but not or all the way over to River Run, but not back. In time for the battle, yeah, whatever. I guess so. Whatever. Even though apparently they know that, uh, well, I guess she probably sent a, bur- a raven, right? That the blackfish isn't going to help them. Um, well, yeah, yeah it's, it's. I guess it was the raven. I don't know. Um, but anyway, so it's not like that. It's it's she she does it, and then Daenerys makes a very clear, yep, sort of, you know, eyes back mm-hmm. at her. It's yeah, yeah, it's it's happening, and then. The only physical contact that happens in this weird little four-square match they're having, 
um, at the end of it is Daenerys and Yara. And now, granted, they are the leaders, but come on. This was yeah. this was pretty well telegraphed. I mean, if we look, I mean, I'm just thinking about like I love it so much. I love I love it. <laughs> I, I love it so much. But like, you know, obviously her relationship with Khal Drogo began uh, not a, not consensually, not at all. Uh, but did but did become a you know not out of Stockholm oh, yeah. syndrome. I don't think a genuine uh, bond between them. Uh, he's gone. Uh, and she reflects Harris. on it with with a lot of fondness too. Yeah, yeah, uh, and then who we had since, uh, you know, Dario Naharis, who is very clearly just, you know, uh, a kind of slab of granite with abs painted on him. <laughs> um, yeah, Pretty much. Yeah. Her attraction to him is very, doesn't seem very... Uh, it's very based in, in nothing more. Yeah, it's, it's based in nothing more than his, the fact that he's an attractive person. They, very, they don't have a uh, romantic... Uh, it's, I don't even think he's romantically attracted to her in any way. It's very it seems very clear that they just are kind of friends with benefits at best. Um, and you know, Jorah. I like how we're just... trying to diminish their relationship so we can we can make. Well, I'm, I mean, I mean, kind of, but like, it's like they have nothing. They have nothing. There's clearly they, I don't really see don't. much of a spark there now. I don't um, know that Daria Naharis isn't isn't enamored of her, but I can't. It's hard to tell. Yeah, exactly. He certainly doesn't seem to have any illusions about. Uh, their, uh, yeah, he's certainly not like I'm going to be them. king. Yeah, no. I'm yeah, he's, like he's very clear. Like I'm totally happy just being like you know, I'm totally happy just like waiting in her bed all day while she while she rules the seven kingdoms. Yeah, basically. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but you know, and who I'll knows? This, who's uh, who's to say that that would between who's to say that would have to stop? I you know who knows what their you know their their situation would be you well, know. And also, there's this strong advantage that you know why is it she that she's so willing to allow the Iron Islands to. Uh, not be part of her kingdom, right? To become autonomous, sort of an autonomous area. Is it mm-hmm. because she's like, well, if we get together, then I kind of will have control over all of it, won't I? You know what I mean? It's sort of a meaningless gesture. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, why does he, I mean, why is Yara so willing to uh, to give up their uh, their customs? Oh yeah, uh, I think in service of Daenerys. I mean, look, the moment the we smirk- didn't get is her showing up first and seeing Daenerys and be like, "Oh, I didn't know she looked like that." <laughs> We're changing this plan altogether now. <laughs> no, yeah, the, like I said, the little smirk that she gives to Yara has more. Uh, uh, there's more sexual tension in that one moment oh my God. than in any of her interactions with anyone else in in five and a half seasons. Oh yeah, absolutely. Ever. You know, throughout the entire run of the show, uh, there is more clear attraction in just this, you know, in these couple of frames. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, I'm very much on board. Uh, this ship, which is, I, I can't even begin to think of a name for this because I don't think their, their names uh, kind of smash together very well. Not really. Um, Denara? Denara. I'm not going to try. I'm not going to try. <laughs> but um, I, I think it's I, I just just to get a, get into uh, what, what what you alluded to earlier. The actual text of this scene is the uh, what you've been talking about since the beginning of the season, which is the idea of the uh, women of Westeros uh, taking control yeah. and taking power and beginning a new kind of age of leadership. Yep. Uh, succeeding the uh, the patriarchal society that, that and uh, it's not clear if they're trying in. to make it sort of equal you know if they're trying to like if the show's going for like a, a like a more equitable split of genders in power positions 
and that their angle is like the youth taking over because that's also a theme in this scene or if they're really just going for women but it seems like it's predominantly women well you could read it either way i think you could read it both ways honestly because what daenerys says is like we're not going to be like our fathers and you can read that as we're not going to be like our parents and we're going to be a new generation or you can read that as you know she says fathers for a reason we're not going to be like the men who came before us right Uh, so certainly both of those things are coming into play in, in in that scene Exactly, and I, I think that that it's you can you can definitely read it either way. But that and Sansa and other things that we've gotten throughout, or Leanna, even Leanna Mormont, like she could have been a boy. They could have done that, and they didn't. Sure. So I think that it's it's a bit more intentional than that. And it's so interesting. I really don't want to say it. It doesn't justify all the things that the show has done at all, but it does make for a really interesting arc for the uh, Game of Thrones universe. That it was this world filled with genuine horrible traumatic things happening that then became a world where that wasn't the norm you know what i mean mm-hmm. it could be very interesting if that's the angle to go um i don't know that that's what they're doing but it's 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 fun to watch and see uh my little pet theory unfold i'll say that <laughs> <laughs> um yeah. but yeah this is I, I really like this scene and i like the negotiations um and i like that theon basically I like. I really like seeing Tyrion and Theon's back and forth, actually, because you realize they oh, haven't yeah. seen each other in some time. We didn't even mention that. Yeah, I, again, it's a great example of characters who haven't seen each other in forever. Yep. I forgot that they had ever even interacted. Yeah, and they remind us that, like, the last time I saw you, you made fun of me for mm-hmm. being short. Um, um, yeah, and I'll, you know, just the way that the scene kind of unfolds, because that's the beginning of the scene, the way that it unfolds from there is that Daenerys, it's worth mentioning, goes in with the assumption that Theon is the one who is going to ask for control of the Iron Islands. She does, yeah. Uh, she, you know, that is her own assumption just based on the way the world works. And the reason that she is, I think, so quick to, um, you know, ally with Yara is that uh, is that that's not the case. Uh, she's really, she seems to be really impressed by, by Yara for being, you know, when she asks her, like, has the Iron Islands ever had a queen? Uh, and she says no. It, that's, it, this is... But here's what's so good about Sapochnik. Okay, this is Miguel Sapochnik. We didn't even mention. Oh, his we name. haven't even talked about the direction of this. My God. Yeah, I know. We haven't even gotten into that. But forget. You know, we're gonna. We could talk, do that forever, and we're gonna do that with the battle. And it's. We haven't even gotten there yet. Still. So I'm just gonna say this. This scene opens on Theon. We don't even know that Yara is there. We assume she's there, but we don't know she's there. And it's a, almost a perspective shot of Daenerys, only looking at him, until it opens up to show Yara. And it's so cool because, like, even the camera work here is intentionally, and it's so it's like not even interesting camera work. It's it's just you know medium shots of these characters. It's nothing that interesting, but it's still perspective on you know it it it's very clearly focused on this one character, um, and it's a weird person to focus on knowing the Yara Theon dynamic that like the Yara should really want to focus on. The only reason to do that is to be like, no, Daenerys is addressing uh, Daenerys and Tyrion are addressing you because they think. They think that you're the one that they need to be negotiating with, when in fact it's Yara who the camera's not showing right now because they're not looking at her. So it's almost like we're through their eyes, and it's, it's just a very cool way of setting up this conversation. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the, the I do want to go back real quick now that you bring up Miguel Spachnik. Uh There are two, the two shots thus far that I want to single out are the final shot of the Melisandre scene where you see her. Uh, they're both silhouette uh, kind of wides. Uh, you see her in silhouette, and you and she's also framed in the door of the tent. Um, really, 
really, really cool composition. And then, of course, the great shot of Davos after he finds the stag standing against the sunrise. Right, that's a good uh, one, too. Beautiful. Looked like, you know, very a lot of very, like, Roger Deakins shots in yeah. this episode. Yeah, and but like, what's, would, what's you know, cool is that this, this, this episode mixes so well both beauty and meaning. Because sometimes mm-hmm. I think Roger Deakins just makes pretty shots because they look cool, not because they yeah. necessarily <laughs> have anything. Like, they mean anything, which is fine. Aesthetic value is its own thing, but... I think there's there's more you can do with it if you can sort of give it that extra level, um, and I think that we get that especially in the battle scenes a little bit later, and in, just in the camera work, and that's why I want to credit. So I, I do think so. Who was the cinematographer for this episode? Oh oh, oh you're gonna love this. This I, I don't know if you know the cinematographer is a man named Fabian Wagner. Right. Yep. I uh, Fabian Wagner has shot several episodes of Game of Thrones in the past, and his next project is the film uh, Justice League. Oh. Really? No kidding. Yeah, right. I had, I I was at the beginning of this recording. I was I was looking at that and I was looking at his Wikipedia page and I was like, oh, really? That's kind of a huge yeah, oh, jump okay. up. Yeah, so right. So that surprises me that really Larry Fong like isn't isn't sticking around for Justice League. Well, that too. Yeah. Well, it's. I mean, and I, I love won't Larry be Fong. Complaining so. if the, I won't be complaining if Justice League has a different <laughs> visual aesthetic from Batman v Superman, uh, a movie that even I generally liked. But you know, by God, turn on a light in there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, that's a little bit different, but know, so but it, he has. But I think Larry Fong has has certainly lit things before. He did Three Hundred. He did Watchmen. Well, that was kind of dark, but he. he <laughs> it, I don't think it's exclusive to him. I think that's also just what they decided to do with the movie. Um, but yeah, Zack Snyder is Zack Snyder is great with budgets. Uh, he always makes sure that the um, electricity bill comes in under. The electricity bill comes. In. Well done. Well, I mean, I think uh, Nolan did that too. He just used lighting a little bit more intelligently, so you were able to actually see what was going on. You could on. see what's going on in a right. Nolan in a Nolan movie. Say what you will about him. Right. <laughs> um, and I and I actually think it was a lot of his shots are overlit for a Batman movie, but whatever. That, um, yeah. Well, exactly. <laughs> that's a total side point, though. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so uh, that's really interesting. So, but again, I think it's more than just the cinematography. I think that's a big element to this, and I don't want to downplay that, but. It's also how it's edited, how it's um, uh, what's shot—not just how it's shot, but what's shot, what's what what um, is sort of chosen to be included in a given episode. And I think all of that comes together very clearly as a result of a ringleader type character like Sapochnik. And again, I'm doubly going down. I'm going to double down on this because he also did the two best episodes of last season, Hard Home, and yep. um, oh, what was the other one? It was the. Um... Uh, the gift. The gift. Right. right. So I, I think he's definitely. Uh, I, I think he's definitely clearly the 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 elements here, um, especially since uh, there's a lot of really great people who have worked on the show in the past. It's not not to disparage them, but the show just looks and feels completely different when he's behind. Oh no! It, it 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 is when he is directing. It's like night and day. He, yeah, it, when he is directing, it is the only time that this show lives up to the. The uh, the storied promise of the phrase "It's not TV, it's HBO." Uh, this episode genuinely looks, you know, for, as 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 kind of meaningless as this word becomes when talking about TV. Uh, it's a cinematic hour Absolutely. of television. Yeah. It genuine, and that's not you know in term you know just because it uses whatever specific uh, stylistic hallmarks. It looks like a movie in a way that you know I I kind of felt like 
in the past when people have said that about Game of Thrones, it's always with the caveat of, you know, for TV. For TV. So when people talk about, like, you know, an episode like season, um, probably like Blackwater, what I'm thinking of, like, when people talked about that episode being cinematic, it was like, let's just, you know, really what you're saying is it had a big, big explosion in it. Uh, it doesn't really, it still looks like a TV show. The show is always, I think it's always, most, always looked like... I, I, I always, every time I think of Blackwater, I haven't seen that episode in a long time, and it's this, you know, widely hailed episode. And it, it wasn't bad, don't get me wrong, I enjoyed it, but... Um, all I can think of is that stupid scene where, like, the entire battle takes place in front of one wall, because it seems like that was the set they had. And so, like, there's just this fight of, like, ten people, just Tyrion and the rest of them fighting in front of this one segment of the wall that they were able to shoot in front of. And so it's just so funny to me when I think about, like, the scope of Blackwater when it was, like, the harbor, which was big-ish, I guess, and then this big CGI blow-up scene, and then this little wall and, like, 20 people. <laughs> it's, yeah. That doesn't I mean, mean anything to me, and it, when you have, especially like compared to a battle like this, or even Hard Home, which wasn't even a big battle technically, it wasn't even supposed to be the big battle episode. Yeah, I mean, it's it 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 comes down to it's almost like it's this almost imperceptible. I don't even know how to kind of qualify it because it's just like if you if I showed you it just there's just two shots from this episode that I would need to show someone and to pose this question. It's the shot of Daenerys on her dragons, uh, or, you know, any one of them, really, as long as the three, the three dragons are in frame, and the shot we're going to get to in a minute, which is the long uh, single take of Jon fighting, uh, maybe the best single shot that has ever happened on Game of Thrones. Oh, yeah. Um, Wasn't there a really good one in Hardhome, though? Like, a really good there one? There was, yeah. There was a very similar uh, thing, but this one, I mean, my God. The it, choreography it's... is so cool and feels so not choreographed. It exactly. feels like it's... That's, oh, it's so good. I mean, if you think about, you know, I'm thinking thinking back to just, like, like Blackwater. It's like, that, you know, always, invariably, any frame of Blackwater, you can tell it's a TV show. And yes, it might have kind of a quote-unquote epic scope because there are lots of extras, you know, hitting each other with swords. But it, it, it's still, like, it's still shot like a Law & Order episode, ultimately. <laughs> um, but this episode, it, it well, is shot like a movie and I don't know if it's finally they have the budget to kind of be no, able well, to No, part of the reason part of the reason is that they seem to actually care what the camera's doing and it's again exactly. not, it's only when Spochnik seems to be directing that they seem to care what's going on and I think they saw the feedback they got because it's we've seen it sprinkled throughout this season a little yeah, bit yeah we didn't mention that in the past yeah but he concentrates it and it clearly it's like it emanates out from him it seems like but I think they saw <laughs> that you know I think they listened to our podcast on Hard Home and uh, <laughs> I think um but in Hard Home, all we talked about was the camera work, and I think that's something that we never we never talk about except negatively on Game of Thrones for the most part. <laughs> and I think that that really, I think that was we were far from the only people who noticed how incredible that entire sequence was. I mean, I just and I want to watch Hard Home again. It's such a great sequence. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that it's just caring about that kind of thing, and I don't know that's necessarily a budget thing. It's just wanting, it's just saying I want to go the extra mile and do this. Uh, and it well, may I mean, be, and it may honestly, it may be a question of that may be Miguel Sapochnik going above and beyond what his contract asked him to do, and just being like, no, 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 if I'm going to do this, I want to do it how I want to do it and how I sort of envision this, even if it requires me to do a little bit more on the ground effort than my what what I'm being paid to do. But I just I really want it to look good. I don't know if that's what he's doing, but it yeah. feels like that because well, it that, doesn't. Yeah. I don't know. It doesn't seem like Th- that's there's any I other say... demonstrable difference. That's why I say budget is because when you the more money you have, the more freedom you have, I, I think, to do stuff like that. You know, if you're shooting this episode on a $100 budget, it's obvi- you're not going to be able to do shots like that. But you're also, I think, not going to... 
it's not going to be as worth the time and effort it takes to, you know, use the camera in interesting ways uh, that it would if you didn't have, unless you have, you know, just uh, an endless river of money. And I'm not saying the show has an endless river. Obviously, it's it is still it's a lot of money for a for a TV show, but it is it still pales in comparison right. to you know <laughs> whatever Justice League, right, whatever right, he's right. going to be able to do on Justice League. <laughs> but it is once you money is opportunity basically when in, in filmmaking and it is but there's little things you can you know, do not not universally obviously but you know obviously you can do a lot on a small budget i'm not saying you can you absolutely can um i have <laughs> i've tried anyway but um the, when you're on a project like this i've made like great this, film on a small budget let no, me tell you no i didn't you. mean that i'm saying you know, i didn't mean that i'm saying that, I, you know, know, I, I know i have you, when you are making a movie with a small budget, you try and you kind of have to learn how to stretch that as much as possible. Oh, if you want to make something good, and let, you know, and, or if you don't, then you can maybe make something. You know, you can make clerks, um, and oh. that's fine. You know, no offense, you know, nothing against nothing against the Kevin Smith of 1994. Oh um, man, wow, <laughs> going hardcore on these characters, on these, uh, <laughs> on these movies. you know, um, but. But but I but I don't know how much how much money does it take to do like the shots for example of uh, a Sansa riding away or or the shot of um, Davos with the sunset is that really like a, a huge budgetary? Thing? Well, I'm not that's saying that, I'm not saying that the well that's the thing I'm not saying that those shots necessarily cost money I'm saying that when you have more money behind you it is more worth your time and effort to uh, sure. spend time crafting images like that right as opposed to just you know getting whatever shot you need to tell the story, getting the shots that... Exactly, exactly. Getting the shots that just kind of... that are expository images. Right. Uh, When you have more money, it is more worth it to spend more time crafting images that are, you know, a little more uh, expressionate and uh, that don't necessarily uh, communicate rote information, but that have... but that uh, do kind of either express a certain... Uh, tone or feeling, or that even don't do any of that, that are just kind of pretty. Um, well, and or this, is, to get, you know, this is partially why I love animation, because every shot has yes. to be, it all has to be, I mean, we yes. talked about this before, but it has to be, and it has to be drawn, so you can, you know, you might as well do a cool shot, because you're painting it from the from the get-go, whereas getting a cool shot might, you might have to wait for that right hour, or get the lighting just right, which might take some mm-hmm. time and energy. I certainly understand that, but it just frustrates, frustrates me how often in the show that shots feel like they're just good enough like it's yeah. good enough to get the story across and sometimes not depending on the editing and an action sequence um and i get that sometimes there's budget things and you know you cut around action that you couldn't do i mean i'm sure the choreography for this scene this sequence was so tiring but i know choreographers choreograph choreographed so many of those cool fights like with brienne and the hound and the rest of it and then we end up getting these weird these weird cuts around them, and it, it just feels bad because I mean, if this was choreographed by this any of the same choreographers who worked on those fights, we they clearly have it in them to do something incredible, and we just don't mm-hmm. usually get that. Um, but let's let's go through the battle. Let's go through the battle yeah. just sort of step by step. Um, we can sort of you know we'll we'll move we'll move as fast as we can because we're we're pushing the limit here. Uh, we're already <laughs> at an hour and a half. Why not? Uh, yeah. So we start. We talked. We've talked a little bit already about the Rickon thing. Um, I like how this is introduced because it has. Um, it shows Ramsey walking out and holding, and then as you see that he's holding something, and then it shows that he's holding a leash, and you 
probably like we knew what was going on but i like that because we know what was going on they don't do like the big like <gasps> it's ricken on the leash because we know what's going to happen it's just kind of incidental like in it is but it's of... framed it's framed you see the the leash you see the horse and then you see him come out and you don't see who's behind him because of the way yeah. the camera's framed with the exactly but there's no reveal of ricken right really. it's just in the next shot we see that he's behind Ramsey. There's no grand reveal because we kind of assumed that that was what was going to happen right. anyway. Uh, so it would have been kind of redundant. Uh, it's it's very uh, it's economical, yep. but it's it's cool. Um, then we get this sequence straight out of Apocalypto, uh, where <laughs> oh my god, that's what this reminded Isn't me. Isn't it? Holy crap! It is. Except in Apocalypto, they realize that they should run in zigzag, and they just I don't know. Rick on... <laughs> um, I, what I love about this sequence is that uh... you should have stuck Rickon in a well. And just waited. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> the water goes up. Yeah. Uh, so I think um, what is really funny about it, first of all, apparently the actor who plays Rickon uh, just started watching Game of Thrones. He wasn't allowed to watch it. <laughs> so he's 14 or something now. Because uh, he was a little kid, you know, well, he wouldn't be able to watch yeah, Game yeah. of Thrones, which I, you know, makes sense. That reminds sense. me of um, how they told the kid in The Shining that he was making like a romantic drama. Oh my God. Did they really? Yeah, like, he had no idea what the movie actually was. <laughs> That's awesome. Because, of course, he's none of the shots he's actually in are, like... Scary. Scary, right. anyway. He, they, they just kind of shot around that and then lied to him about the movie he was making. <laughs> like, he mean, didn't know until he was 18, apparently. I mean, if you can do that, uh, it's it's probably <laughs> a better way to do it instead of traumatizing some poor kid. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, so... What was, what was I even saying about that, though? Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. So, 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 Rick, so what's funny about that, though, is that, you know, he of course goes through this whole sequence and he hasn't had a single line this entire season and then he died mm-hmm. um so i just i was i was it hadn't happened yet he hadn't actually died yet but i was like of course rickon's gonna die without ever actually saying any they re- words they really milk this see this scene too like they have the whole thing first of all where he pulls out the dagger and like lifts it up very dramatically but then he cuts the ropes yeah and then you have him like shoot you know, they do the rule of threes thing where he shoots two arrows and misses and then is like very slowly. Honestly, I wasn't sure if he arrow. was going. First of all, it's hard to tell where the arrows were. So I was like, where are the arrows? He would like shoot and then you wouldn't see anything for a minute. Yeah, because they would go like he shoots them in a big arc, I guess. Yeah, so I assume. disappear yeah, yeah. for a little while. Well, because um, usually like this is another example, by the way, of great direction. Um, usually a lot of kind of uh, directors who are stupid um, when they shoot uh, bows and arrows, they'll shoot them like they're uh, shooting a gunfight where the arrow will just immediately be wherever it was fired. Yep. Um, but, but that's not how time. arrows work. Yeah. Yeah, if you're shooting them long distance, the arrow actually has to travel. Well, you get like, this great travel. This great moment a little bit later, which we get in movies a lot, but we never get in shows, uh, except Spartacus, I think, at it. Uh, where uh, <laughs> I thought we were going to get through the, an episode without you mentioning Spartacus. Oh, no. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> um, and by the way, this uh, cinematographer worked on uh, some Spartacus, Blood and Sand, um, like a spinoff thing, not a, not a directly related thing. But he, he had some... Oh, there you go. He, has a little bit, he had a little bit of Spartacus in him. Um, but uh, yeah, so there's a scene where they shoot the volley of arrows, and it follows the arrows, which we don't usually get either. Um, that's the kind of thing you get in Lord of the Rings and, and other series, but um, you, or in other like film type things, but you don't usually get it in shows. And so that was kind of cool, you know, the CGI mm-hmm. following the arrow, just like following a bullet, you know, kind of thing. Um, and also these incredible shots of all the arrows like falling around John. Oh yeah, um, those never look amazing. on him. <laughs> Yeah, right? They miss all of... Although two of them hit Rickon's dead body, which was like, oh, come on. Oh, that was great. I love that. But you know what I like about this editing? Speaking of, of Rickon, though, is even though I knew he was going to die, I still was at the last minute. I was like, oh, he might actually make it. No. Well, like, I figured he'd catch him and he'd get shot or something. No. Nope. 
Um, but yeah, when the when the arrows are landing in him, that was that was sad. But this is where John really pisses me off because then he decides to rage out, which is exactly what Sansa said not to do. Uh, mm-hmm. And then, you know, I wrote lots of angry comments in my notes about him being an imbecile, and uh, he probably should just die. And also, Ramsay deserves the win because clearly he has a no idea what he's doing as a battle as a commander <laughs> in a battle. Um, uh. Uh, incredible shot, though. Uh, this that they hold on for so long of of John facing the uh, the approaching riders. Again, just you know, and it's that's the thing. It's so simple. It is. It's such a simple idea for an. It's like, of course, you'll get an image of of John kind of waiting for these uh, the people charging at him. Um, but it just it, I don't know what it is about this image. It's you know the kind of the he just uh, looks so the, small. Exactly, and in the you know his. I think it's the slow motion probably adds to this too. Uh, the symmetry of the kind of wall of riders just approaching him. Um, it, it looks like almost like rear, rear projection. Um, just a <laughs> wall of people coming at him. Oh, yeah. Um, and it's just Maybe like, that's because they reuse the same image. models for the CGI. Um, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, no, it looks really good. It, sorry, that was, that, was, that was a mean joke because it actually looks really good and I, I really like this and I like the shot of, I think it's his army rushing out and then you have the slow motion horses yeah. galloping. Well, then it's a great, yeah, then it's a great moment of editing is the cut from that to him being saved by his approaching army. Oh my God, yeah, and it's just sudden, right? But before that, we yep. have the slow motion of, and it's so cool because it's not speed ramping, right? But it's the slow motion horses, then the, the opposing army and then boom, and then they crash together. Um, mm-hmm. And this... The slow motion horses, um, it looks like what I immediately thought of is like Revolutionary War painting. Mm-hmm. I immediately went back and, and thought of that uh, sort of thing that I feel like I've seen in, um, I think it was at the Louvre or something. I, I think I saw there was a lot of Revolutionary War type stuff. I don't know if it was at the Louvre. But you've seen that kind of artwork that sort of shows like yeah. mid-battle. It's all that, that horse drawn, uh, that horse um, horse riding type of battle stuff. Because um, I'm very up on in my history, clearly the horse riding battle stuff. But that's that's basically <laughs> how I. Be. But like I think there's a lot of rev- rev- the paintings of Revolutionary War battles that look a lot like that, with the splashing water and mud coming up, and the like sort of the the. That's not, I don't want to say fetishization, but like the the. Uh, embrace of the horse image that seems to be seemed to be very in vogue for a very long time. That's I think definitely died away, <laughs> um, and it's just so cool this moment of just raw energy. Uh, by the way, it's the kind of thing you get in Deadwood a lot, not in that scale at all, because Deadwood's a very small show in comparison in every way. Um, but horses and and uh, that's that vibe is definitely very big there, um, particularly in the opening sequence. Um, but yeah, so it's, this is great. I love the editing here. Uh, and then the fight actually starts, and I, I said something along the lines of God bless Miguel Sapochnik at this point for the <laughs> unbroken shot, because I was like, this is so yeah. beautiful. Um, it's constantly being... I, I, was it even unbroken, or did they use some like clever white... Well, I'm sure they faked it somehow, but it, 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 it is doesn't matter. appear unbroken. It looked unbroken to me. Um, yeah. Uh, and so just, it's just so well done. He's con- first of all, he gets his ass saved so many times, but what was blowing me away is I'm, I'm sitting there going, I know this is f- not real, but I, I honestly can't even fathom how you would even choreograph this scene. Yeah. You know what this shot reminded me of? The, the whole time of the, this shot was happening, I was thinking like, so this is it's what the Revenant would look like if the Revenant didn't look like shit. <laughs> you know, if the Revenant didn't look like it was shot on like DV cameras from 2000, uh, this is what it would look like. Would look oh amazing. my gosh, you're awful. Um, 
I like The Revenant a lot. Did you not like The Revenant? I thought you liked The Revenant. I know, I, I'm still like, The Revenant's fine, I think, but I do think that the image looks like it, it's, it was shot on... Wasn't it know, shot on film, or was it shot digitally? It must have. It, it looks like garbage. I think <laughs> it looks... I'm not, and I like digital cinematography. I, love, I actually love a lot of digital cinematography, uh, but this is a great example of someone who just doesn't really know how to work with... Like, you know... It, basically, the Revenant looks like it was—it's shot like it's Gone Girl or something, like it's the Social Network, uh, but it's a period piece. It's—it's it's a complete like with landscape shots. Of, yeah, of, it's the kind of thing of that of probably would have benefited from, you know, the seventy millimeter, like like Hateful Eight was. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, definitely, because you get those those landscape shots and things like that. But yeah, you know, I thought yeah, it was yeah. pretty. But in any case, and what's funny, <laughs> by the way, just what's funny about that is that uh, who's the cinematographer on that? Um, oh, what's his name? Uh, uh, well, it's uh, Chivo. Yeah, it's Chivo, name? but I forget his his actual name. <laughs> Crap! Oh, it's is it Lubetsky, right? Lubetsky, yeah, exactly. Emmanuel Lubetsky. So he's um worked with digital. He you know he gravity and the rest of it. So like he's he's very sure. fast. Movies that look really good. Film. Yeah. He he as far he was I, I remember watching somebody had put on Birdcage or is it Birdcage? Is that the one with Nathan Lane? Yeah. Um, I think so. So somebody had put that on like maybe a year or so ago and it opens up and it's like cinematographer, like Emmanuel Lubezki. And it was like, Oh my God, he's been around forever. And that, you know, that Oh was... yeah. He's been on like a, you know, I'm trying to, like he shot uh, a little princess back in the day. Yeah. Um, so he's clearly working with film and digital. So it's yeah, funny. Speaking funny. of, I mean, digital cinematography, he shot Ali, which was a great, was like an early, early, like a Michael Mann digital film. Um, you know, obviously, the Cat in the Hat, a great example of. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah, exactly. He's just been around for. He's very facile with both materials. I don't know why they went with digital for that, but maybe that was a. Maybe that was weird a, choice. It was probably also partially a choice because of filming was so difficult to carry around. Film must have would probably. Oh, be. I don't even know if celluloid could have survived exactly. the climate. <laughs> so that might have been an actual forced. Um, yeah, difficulty. yeah. But in any case, we're complete, complete sidetrack. Um, so this is a great, great scene. Um, great. Uh, really cool um unbroken shot and then we get this scene that i think we haven't talked about uh and i i I think i probably alluded to it earlier when we were going on and on about you know talking around this battle but now i can actually talk about it so there's a shot a a, a sequence uh, right around here that happens after the unbroken one where it keeps um john's face sort of center framed and then it keeps cutting through time as he's sort of just wildly slashing his way through whatever's going on. And so he's sort of facing the camera and sort of just trying to fend people off. And it just cuts through time. It's sort of like, I don't know, it almost felt experimental. It was so weird. It was such a cool yeah. little weird... You know what I'm talking about, this scene? This, yeah, yeah. Well, sequence? it's another example of like what I was mentioning with the uh, the sequence we'll get to. <laughs> what I was mentioning earlier with the sequence we'll right, get to Right, and later. this was my counter to that. We're like this, I, I think that one's great, and this one's all... They're, they're great in, in different ways. But yeah, exactly, where... And this is the kind of thing you'd like, this Game of Thrones never does this, ever. Never. Um, and, and, oh, and this is the other, this is this is how I brought it up earlier as a context. This is a complete thumb in the eye of all the, um, and so is the one you're talking about, complete thumb in the eye of the, like, well, you know, it sort of communicates that, you know, we don't really know what's going on, you know, the, the <laughs> chaos of the scene. No, this communicates the chaos of the scene, let me tell you. Yep. This yep. is how you do it. You do this, this, so this is rapid cutting by keeping things seven to frame. So you never, you never don't know where John is. He's just, it's just feels stressful because it's faster and faster and faster. 
uh, until he finally eventually a little bit later gets knocked down and then there's that sequence and in both cases you're never spatially sort of confused or you have rough ideas of where people are but it's still communicating absolutely the chaos of the situation yeah and it's just beautiful. well you know what it is it's treating the camera as you know so often especially in tv and the reason you get such boring cinematography and just like you know 90% of all film throughout history uh, is that you treat the camera like it's a character in the scene. Yeah. And so it is when you do that, it's subject to the limits of what a character can experience. And obviously, the, you know, the reason that you do that is because the camera is actually a character in the scene. It's actually sitting there on set. Right, of course. Uh, so, But, you know, when you are willing to treat it as an entity kind of outside of the, um, you know, diegetic... Uh, you know, existence of of this of the scene. Um, to me, it sort of works as a portal. It's sort of a portal into a into a character, or it can be a portal into a character. Exactly, yeah. and, you can, and like like with the scene I mentioned earlier, like you can use it to as from the perspective of a character. You can literally bring it and exactly. you know, put it behind their eyes. But that doesn't mean that the scene has to be a kind of literal translation of an event. It can be a little more, like I said, like impressionistic. Right. Um, which is what like I think both of these moments ultimately amount to, um, and it's just like I can't, again, like we've been saying, I can't believe this is happening on Game of Thrones. Right, right, exactly. And by the way, it was around this moment. Um, uh, first of all, him getting saved all this time, seeing all the the the, the, the long the one shot, the uh, the uh, the um, the unbroken shot, the um, this this quick cutting with his like well keeping it sort of matching on his face as this is happening. Um, Finally, before we even get that big epic shot, it finally felt like where we see like the the two battle, the two armies. It felt like a big battle for the first time on Game of Thrones ever. I think. Yep. Um, yep. Yep. You know, seeing a big wall and giants and the rest of it. Yeah, like like physically, it is big. But the feeling like a big battle, feeling the scope of it is just a different feeling where and i think they communicate i think you know what it probably clicked way early on in that moment we were talking about earlier with the with john staring at the oncoming army that size differential is huge and it immediately sort of puts in perspective when that mass gets to you you will be a small dot in a very very big battle and we didn't need to see that from bird's eye view to get the idea you know what i mean well yeah i mean how many times on the show before have we gotten, like you say, the bird's eye view of the gigantic armies and, you know... We get it in this battle, other. but by that point, exactly. it's already been communicated. Exactly, but the reason it actually feels big for the first time here is because they follow through on it for so many times. Like, I remember last season, we got it with Stannis, and we got, the, of course, the huge... I remember the huge wide shot of Stannis drawing his sword and oh, all yeah. the armies drawing it, which is a cool shot. Um, and it, you know, kind of implies a bigness, but it's always... The show is always implying. It always has to kind of get through, you know, suge through suggestion, get at this idea that something epic in scope is happening. Right. Uh, because it can never... It's, I mean, you know, to put it bluntly, it's probably never really had the budget to actually which show is okay. the scope of that. Which is okay. You know, and it is, I'm not saying it's not okay, obviously. You know, it is... You do what you... You gotta do what you gotta do. But um, if you hire somebody like across. this, you can do so much with it. And by the way, I think Peter Jackson did this with... You know, I think part of the problem with the, the Hobbit films is that there was a... You know, if you look at the, the shots of, like, Helm's Deep without the extras that have been, see, like, added in with digital technology, because that was the, the big moment or the big technological innovation of the film, um, it's hilarious because it's a very small little army, but that was then <laughs> amplified with, with technology. And I think that 
you can with that small group because you obviously don't have 10,000 characters to work with. You only have whatever your extras are um, that you've hired for the movie. And you do have a big budget for that. But Peter Jackson worked with them to make it feel huge so that, you know, the, the scope of what's going on throughout that entire fight, you definitely feel throughout everything that's going on. And I think that's true here where it's not necessarily that you hired 10,000 people. It's that you make this one, you follow one character or a couple of characters as they struggle against what feels like an absolutely overwhelming force, which which makes it just makes it feel big. And it's even if you're, let's say it's two evenly matched armies. It's not even like, Oh, you know, we're going to lose. It's just a question of how do you feel as a single person in this battle? Uh, And it's, again, it's the kind of thing that's communicated extremely well in a shot, like the opening sequence from Saving Private Ryan, for example, because you, you, that, that one soldier or your little boat of soldiers versus this you know the the thousands of people who are landing on this beach and the thousands of people who are trying to keep you off of the beach it, it's just you immediately feel the very personal investment in this battle as opposed to sort of a general like there's a lot of people with swords you know <laughs> it's it's very different <laughs> um yeah yeah so yeah this is this is really great and so um i think uh I was kind of hoping for Brienne to save Tormund in, in a scene like she would show up because it looked like Tormund was going to die at some point. Um, yeah, this has happened a lot, actually. Over the past couple seasons, there have been so many moments where I'm like, is Tormund... They're going to kill Tormund here. Um, especially during... I've Not the Watchers on the Wall. Well, maybe the Watchers on the Wall, but like during Hard Home, I thought that he was going to die. Um, just a, but There have been so many moments where I feel like they're about to kill him, and it's getting to the point now where, like, it's kind of unbelievable that this show hasn't killed him already because he's the perfect he is the kind of character oh he's the perfect character to kill I'm really glad they haven't but I well what's funny is like now because he's been alive for so long he's almost not anymore because for previously he was the exact character who would you know back when Game of Thrones was just killing off a character every episode just cuz like last season um he is exactly the sort of like secondary character who is like he's been around enough that and has enough of a personality that like you'll be there'll be an impact when he when he goes, but he's not important enough to the plot that it matters. Um, but he's been around for so long that like no, now he's like important, so important to the plot that he almost like. I don't know die. how important he is. It's more that we just have a connection to him, which actually I would say probably makes him even. But that's why I was so ready to be bawling about Tormund, and which by the way is a big achievement because. Of course, I've said in the past I haven't cared about yeah. a character dying on this show for ages. I really just haven't. It's just like, oh, great, another one died. But because they haven't done it in a long time, because I've really grown to really like Tormund, and he's been so endearing and sweet this season, I've been like, oh, you know, and then when it looked like he might die, I was like, no, <laughs> not Tormund. Um, and then I found myself feeling that, which is something I haven't felt for this show in a long time. Um, so that was cool. Well, it- What's um, funny is, like, cool I'm, I'm thinking about, like, what I used to say about Ramsey, which is, like, oh, he gets in all these situations, and he always makes it out, and it's so unbelievable, and the show is just, you know, cheating to make him win. And it's, like, it's kind of doing the same thing with Tormund, like, especially in this episode. <laughs> it's kind of, like, fudging things to make sure Tormund stays alive, but the difference is that I actually like it when Tormund is on screen. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, true. So I don't mind. But when they, do, when they did it with well, Ramsey... he's also not like, nearly as central as Ramsey is. Ramsey's, like, a central villain. I wouldn't say Tormund's a central hero. Well, yeah, but it's it's also like, you know, it, anything that happened that meant I would have to watch Ramsey again made me mad. Um, but anything that happens that means I get to see more Torment, it makes me happy. It, yeah. Because I, like, I actually like Torment. <laughs> He's so fantastic. That's Christopher Hivu, right? His name? Oh, God, I can't even begin to... 
pronounce his name. <laughs> um, probably he's great though. I, I he's been great yeah. since he was first introduced, and um, he's only grown on me more and more every season. Um, with particularly particularly this season, but he's he's just fantastic. Um, so yeah, so then we get so I, I this was at the it was at this point that I was realized the editing was really good because you know. It, it, it's not just the camera work here. It's also how it's edited. Um, why don't you cover this? This So this is the scene you were talking about before, where he sort of gets buried underneath this stampede right. of people. Right. So what happens is that the Boltons, uh, just like he said was going to happen, uh, you know, they do the pins. They go around them, and they do the phalanx, and they just are, like, pushing them in and crushing them right. together. And John starts to get buried under people. Um, and, yeah, like I like I mentioned earlier, it's so... It's so Oh God, I don't want to. I feel like maybe I've used this word too much, but it's brilliant the way that they communicate what is happening to John in this moment, uh, because it's not. Um, it, first of all, it's chaotic, like you said earlier. It's, it's chaotic, but it is. Yeah, it's suffocating. It, it but you don't lose. Uh, you. It's not that you're confused about what's going on. It is able to be. Uh, you know, like I said, you know, chaotic, and there's just and so dis- much. I would say it's disoriented. And dis- but not in, it is disorienting, yeah. but it's also like you're never confused as to what you're what you're looking at. You're never like, "Wow, well, I don't even know what I'm looking at right, right. now." Uh, it, but it is disorienting, and it is communicating the disorient the disorientation of of the moment. Um, but what really struck me about this is are the POV shots from John of you know looking up through through this just oh, like pile of just bodies, and you just see these kind of flashes of of, of darkness as these silhouettes move across the light. Um, and it is, it's like, this is so, it's, it's this great, you know, I, I don't want to overuse the word impressionism because I don't even know if I'm using it correctly. Uh, <laughs> I, hope I, I hope I am. Uh, I think I am. But it is just the way that you get this very, these images, these individual images that are all, you could almost call them abstract. Uh, if you removed them from the context of, you know, obviously we know what we're looking at and we know what's happening in the surrounding context. Uh, but if you take them out of that, uh, it's it's like I don't. It is so kind of beautifully, um, like I said, abstract, and it, and it's it evocative, and it it, it feels is, like, it, is evocative. it feels like he's trapped underwater, is what it feels like, and that's what's so cool when he sort of finally gets up through yeah, that hole breath. and takes that breath. It's so cool because he's just in a mass of people. And by the way, I just wanted to also point out there's also a, a link to the imagery of I know I've linked this to like wars and battles from all these different things. This sequence where they're sort of being boxed in and then this pile of bodies and the rest of it felt uh, initially I thought of 300 because of the you know the phalanx thing and whatever Roman yeah. and Greek <laughs> uh, sort of uh, battle strategies. But I also thought here of um, I don't know if it's been in any movies. I've definitely heard stories about. Um, like Nazi Germany rounding up Jews in like little uh, in like courtyards or like town sort of centers and, and sort of surrounding them. I've seen that as, I don't know, like if that's, like I said, I'm not sure if I've heard that as stories or as something that happened in a movie or both, or maybe it became in, it entered into a movie because it was in a, it was a, like a famous story or famous anecdote. Um, but sort of the sort of enclosing and encroaching on um, uh, this group and sort of tightening the pack and forcing them to do something or to get together and, you know, get onto a train or whatever the thing is. And I just, I kept thinking of that, especially with the pile of bodies. And it sort of reminded me of like the concentration camps type, type stuff. And I was just, I, for some reason, it immediately um, was evocative of that. And so I had that sort of idea of just overwhelming, uh, like morbidity 
and also the feeling of being almost swimming in this like morbid sea of bodies and that when he like reaches up to like catch a breath it's just so it's horrifying but also it 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 is abstract in a way it sort of cre- it makes out of it, out of this sea of bodies it makes like a like a, almost a body of water or a body of liquid and it's just very bizarre to to see but it's and it's yeah. not what i it's I'll, I'll say this this is not how i expected this battle to go down at all. <laughs> uh, in terms of the yeah. camera work yeah yeah it is you're, you're right it is curious how it evokes like kind of the cinematic language of drowning like you picture i think of kind of scenes of drowning that i've seen and you often get that pov shot of the person like uh looking up at the surface of the water as they kind of get dragged down below and you just get and the, blurry light you know and blurry exactly shadows. and then and then of course them bursting up yep uh, and getting the big breath of air. It's yeah, that is interesting how it how it evokes that without actually being in any water at all. Not even close. And it kind of makes it all the more horrifying because we obviously we get the impression of drowning, but we know that it's just because of all the, you know, people, both living and dead, just crushing him. Yep. It makes it all the more horrifying. It's absolutely terrifying. But it's and it's just I don't know, it's just so well edited. This is great. This is great. And if you're watch if you're listening to this and you've been listening to our podcast and you're like the hell are they talking about when we're talking about like <laughs> why something like why an action scene is bad or in in this show which we say a lot or it's not well edited or well shot this is this is what we mean this is what it looks like when it's good when they're doing something yep. interesting now you don't have to be so artistic about it you can just make something that's you know we can see what's going on um but this oh, is this is doing what I what we wanted, or at least what I wanted, and then going like way beyond what you needed to do to like. Yeah, yeah, me. like we talk about, you know, we talk about um, trying to think of a scene, or maybe earlier this season where, like, I'll say this: I remember when Hard Home happened. I was like, this makes me. This is an action scene that, like, I I, I would be happy. I'm happy that this is happening on Game of Thrones. I'm happy that Game of Thrones finally has an action scene that's this, that's this good. This scene, I would be happy in anything if I saw an action scene this. Good. Oh yeah. Anything, any any TV show, any movie. This would be like I was gonna say above par. I keep talking about Lord of the Rings, like Lord of the Rings is the standard to hold it against. This, in many ways, is way more interesting than what happens in the battles in Lord of the Rings. More interesting, certainly. Like like overall, I would rather watch the Battle of Helm's Deep, uh, for a lot of reasons. Um, But I like this battle because, or I like this what they do with this because of like that abstract imagery and the rest of it just doesn't happen in Lord of the Rings. It doesn't happen in almost anything. It doesn't happen in Spartacus. I'll say that this is the first time I've really just, you know, tip of the hat. Um, Spartacus, Spartacus has more emotional one-on-one fights throughout a battle and that kind of thing. But that's very different than what we get here, which is, again, it's just, you like you said, it's, 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 there's an artistry, there's an art to it, like a, 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 a mm-hmm. portraiture to it. That's just very different um, that I, I just really dig. Uh, yeah. Oh, speaking of one-on-one, I, you know, I just want to bring this up. Um, during that tracking shot, especially, or not the, that unbroken uh, take, uh, it's not really a tracking shot. Um, I was really shocked that they didn't have the moment that I talked about last week where Ramsey and John find each other on the battlefield. I thought that that w- was what it was building up to. Um, well, he does see like, the, the, like, lieutenant guy, and then they see each other, and then yeah, he's kind get... of a He's kind of a mini-boss. He has a mini-boss fight. Um, no, but he doesn't but fight him. It's... They immediately get They immediately yeah. get pulled apart. And then it's um, Tormund who... Oh, that's fight. right. It, it, that's what I thought was going to happen. But yeah, it, that's what... Again, it's it's kind of... It feels like it's building up to something like that. I thought it was building up to something with Ramsey. But this is the one moment where, like... I remember... I, the, what, the image I had in my mind was the image of him um, 
uh, shirtless holding the two knives when uh, Yara comes to save Theon. It's like, that was a moment where he just got right in it. He was leading the fray. Right. Uh, and he he was totally willing to just, you know, he was prepared, he was willing to fight. And this is, this is what I think, this is where I think Sansa got to him in that moment. And he's maybe staying John out too. of it because... So you think that his, his, his usual ammo isn't staying out of battle, it's... Well, that's what's that's that's the kind of the question I'm asking because obviously you know if if the, if if uh, he did stay out of battle in those instances it redeems those instances for me but we didn't see what happened what we have always when we have seen things happen it's him being right there and winning yeah I don't think but I never I didn't buy your initial thesis that that Sansa got to him so I would argue here it's just he's like why would I get involved in this we have the upper hand and everything's going fine and he seems very smug until even after he hears the horn he's like all right. Uh, but that's what I'm saying. It's counter to what we normally see him do. Why, the Ramsey that we've seen previously on this show is the Ramsey who would be... I mean, we see him at the front lines at the very beginning of the battle, but then he leaves. He retreats, and he lets everyone else fight. So it's, it is it is it is out of character for him to not be kind of front and center for this battle. And the only thing that I can attribute it to, the only things that I can attribute it to, I guess, are A, just uh, you know bad writing, it's out of character for him, or B, that what we saw earlier in this episode made him not want to be in the fray, made him not want to be actually fighting. And so that's, that's you know, I, I, that's really the only conclusion that I can draw. I honestly just got the impression it was just beneath him. He just was like, this is a very small but we've never se- but, but again, like, we've never seen that. We've seen him fight in much pettier battles, like fighting the Greyjoys, and he was totally willing to fight. Uh, but in this instance, he's, he's, he steps back. He's willing to I, fight, I, but it, we didn't see what happened. We didn't see what, what he actually did. Well, exactly, but the implication is that either that he fought or the fact, you know, he could have, if he didn't want to fight in that instance, he could have just sent people down to fight. He wanted to fight. He wanted to be the one who did it. Uh, and he wanted to make sure they knew that he was the one who did it. I think he but wanted this... to be there and sort of claim, I, I think he does a very smart thing of being on the battlefield so he can claim he was at the battle. You know, if he stayed in, if he stayed in the keep or if he stayed wherever else, then he wouldn't really get to claim any part of it. But if he goes down with them and then sort of waits at the edge of the battle, then he gets to take credit for it. Um, but has Ramsey been someone who's who's taken credit, or has Ramsey been someone who does things? It depends, because I think that That's he the did. Question. I think I think there was some like as much as we're like, oh, he doesn't care about his. He does care about reputation to some extent because he had to do that in order to get his father's approval. And that's not because he actually cared about his father's approval or anything, but it allowed him to do things like get his name and be able to, you know, sort of move up the ranks a little bit in his within his family and to. Uh, he wouldn't have been in a position, for example, to kill his father and take his place uh, if he hadn't built his reputation up to that point um, with his dad, to the point where his dad was willing to make him a Bolton and to make him sort of the favored son. Uh, and then as soon as that started slipping, he got rid of him. So that kind of thing did matter. Uh, but again, I mean, that's an instance of like, he got rid of him. He did it. Yeah, but he that's a one-on-one. I think if it was one-on-one, that would be one thing. But he didn't really have, that's not how battles work. Except on Spartacus, but mostly that's not normal. <laughs> it's not like how. But don't we see him in the battle with Stannis fighting? I feel like no, we, we have we've never seen him fighting. That was your big complaint. It was like we've never we have no evidence of it. We just except for what people say, they seem to say that he seems to be able to win battles all over the place. Huh. Yeah, I don't know, but in any case, I I it was cool to see him for what he really is, which sort of felt to me like. 
he's really interested in the sort of sadistic personal one-on-one stuff. I don't know if he's so into the, like, getting into the middle of a battle. And I think he was, it, to me, I was imagining him on the on the edge of the battlefield, imagining how he's going to exact his revenge on Sansa and John if John's still alive, once he's busy, you know, once he's finished mopping up the rest of the army, because, you know, no problem. Uh, he's just not counting on Sansa to show up with Littlefinger. I don't know. I, I mean... I feel like Ramsey, like Ramsey's a sadist. It does. It seems unlike him to pass up an opportunity to engage in violence. Yeah, but he doesn't ever give. He again in a battle, you don't have all the power, and he likes to always have all the power. He never likes mm. to have any. No one else ever okay. has a knife. Nobody else ever. He's always the one in control, one hundred percent, no matter what he does. Okay, you know. Okay, so, I'm with you there. Yeah, right. just I don't know. That's my guess. Um, yeah, but speaking of, uh, oh well. First of all, uh. Is one oh, one yeah, the they're only saved giant by... Left? Huh? Is one one Yeah, the... I think so. Yeah, okay. I, I found that a little... Which makes that... Uh, which... Yeah. Um, so... There's a whole... Because I remember there's a whole song in the books called The Last of the Giants um, that I think... I don't remember if that... I, I think they must have talked about it uh, once because I'm pretty sure you're right. He is the last giant. He's certainly the only one we ever see, so... Well, there were, weren't there more in the, in the Watchers on the Wall? No, I think he was the only one, wasn't he? Who were riding the mammoths? Weren't there other giants, or were they not riding mammoths? Was that just regular people? I think they were... Oh. I don't remember. But in any case, he's the only one left of those, uh, regardless. Right, I didn't realize they all died, though. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I don't remember if they were... But yeah, yeah. Yeah, it looks like... Yeah, there were other giants. Yeah, there were a bunch of them. It's just a lot of them died. I don't know if there were more than one mammoth, but there was more than one... uh, There was more than one giant. Yeah. Um, but in any case, so, uh, yeah, so we get all this, you know, we did the rest. So then, um, by the way, I didn't see this coming, even though I should have, cause we've talked about it, but I completely yeah. missed the whole little finger showing up thing right. when it happened. I was like, oh yeah, this actually, okay. I, I'm I want to talk about this because this, I was actually upset with pretty upset with Sansa about this. Um, yeah, the, this is my, this was the logical gap I was talking about earlier. Yeah. Why the hell did she allow John to go into the middle of this? With yeah, right. Yeah. It for, I mean, look, okay. and not tell uh, anyone. Okay, let's talk about why. From Sansa, from Sansa's perspective, she thought John. I'm trying to like. I'm just trying to riddle out her logic. She thought John would be upset that she asked Littlefinger for help. Like she was that she was in contact with Littlefinger, um, but. The Why? only thing that I can imagine John being upset about is if she did it behind his back, which she did. Right? Yeah. No, it makes no sense at all. I and think... if she's talking about you know John and his strategy and John needing more men and what she thinks John needs to do, you know what would really help John strategize is if he knew he had an entire army coming to back well, him up. Here's the question: Did she foresee that John wouldn't be able to control himself, and that, or that she would he wouldn't be a match for Ramsay's goading? And decided if he knew he had these people, he would wait for them to show up, and then they'd all be dead. Because they all would have fallen for the trap. To, in other words, keep John out of the loop so that he can't screw up the one trump card that they have. You know what I mean? That's the best answer I've I've come up with, because otherwise it's just she was perfectly fine with John, like, getting killed. (laughs) But But the Knights of the Vale are so many that, like... I'm pretty sure they they match or outnumber Ramsey's army with the Knights of the Vale combined, so I'm not sure that like what, 
the, the trap wouldn't even, whatever trap that she was foreseeing would be much less of a concern because of that because they wouldn't be outnumbered anymore. Maybe she didn't want to take any chances, or I don't know. Like they couldn't that's get, my, they couldn't my, get, they couldn't get pinched because they couldn't be have been surrounded. I don't think she trusts anyone. I don't know that she doesn't. I don't. Yeah, I just and it's not that like she thinks somebody's going to do something intentionally malevolent toward her. Like John's not going to do anything like that. But I think she's Here, just also. He, he, this is this is something that just bugs me in like any kind of really any anything that has a battle scene like this. Um, the fact that like the two and I know that this is like actually how history went, but it's dumb. The fact that the two armies meet and decide when they're gonna have the battle is so like it's it's like a parody of the kind of how we how we. It uh, was even picture... dumber with muskets and standing yeah, in a line like... and shooting each other. That is the funniest. The fact that that was ever a battle strategy is hilarious to me. It's incredible. It's like, oh well, this it, it's 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 this you know Please exaggeration of the idea of like gun. you know. <laughs> The people in power have to obey, you know, by like, you know, custom, and they, you know, we have to be proper about. But clearly, this they don't. Honorable. Sneaking into camps and killing people, and the rest of it isn't. Yeah. Well, I mean, Ramsey, you know, didn't do that. He obviously did something, something else, a dirty trick. But the just the concept of like, the two armies know where the other one is, and the fact that they would both say, "Okay, so um, you're there, and, and we're there. Okay, so uh, tomorrow we're gonna meet here and fight." It's like, well, why wouldn't you just? Uh, just fight. Yeah, <laughs> just well, why don't you go really to the other one and, in, and attack? They don't really do that in like Lord of the Rings, for example. They just sort of wait to see. That doesn't happen in Lord of the Rings. Yeah, yeah. it's much more spontaneous. But they're also like they're fighting like monsters in Lord of the Rings. Um, they are, but the you know, when are... the, Saruman's army shows up, for example, at Helm's Deep. They just sort of know they're coming. They they saw them and they sent out scouts and found out that this was. It's more like uh, a ground level version of like Age of Empires, where like you don't you don't talk to the other people before you before you bring your army to the front door. You just show up with Lord it. Of the Ring, yeah. Lord of the Rings is also all, like, sieges and stuff, That's where true. it's, like, people Yeah, people are coming to attack your stronghold. Yeah, but they didn't, like, yeah, go the negotiate Pelinor with the orcs. was sort of, you know... Well, I guess that's still, that's still right. That was still kind of spontaneous, though. It was just, like... Yeah, spontaneous, but I'm saying that wasn't, that wasn't really a siege. That's um. true. but it was, Yeah, but it was more spontaneous. But you're right. It's Lord of the Rings gets around this. Um, but again, like I said, this is obviously... Uh, history but right. it's still so dumb <laughs> but i think it's also a question of egos and who you know who you're fighting i think the the real like uber loyalty to these figureheads or these houses and, and things and names in, in medieval times were, i must I have to assume were so big that they were okay with their leader going out and having this again these chest beating competitions with each other so they can be like well i'm going to bring out my army and it's so much bigger than your army and I've got a sword that's three times as long as your sword, and you know we all know what all of this is code for. And it's just that seemed to be what <laughs> that I have to, and then and that everybody who was fighting for them was totally okay with this extremely pathetic show of you know uh, arm flexing, you know, um, bicep flexing type of thing. Uh, but in any case, it is silly. It works. It's fine. I guess my bigger problem with this moment is the fact that. Uh, you know, this is a Helm's Deep moment where, you know, Gandalf shows up. It happens in a lot of, you know, last minute the cavalry arrives kind of thing. Um, and also the logical lapse, as, as we said, that Sansa decided that this was an okay plan. Well, I'll just let John run into this and then I'll just show up maybe with little... The other thing is she might not have known if but he, he was going to say yes or didn't know if they would actually show up. Maybe that was... I mean, well, I mean, I yeah, I guess... Or she didn't I want them to rely to... on it or... I don't know. Maybe, but like... If the thing you said earlier is true, like why couldn't she have just said, "Hey, John, um, you know, I know it's risky, but 
the Knights of the Vale are going to show up as a, like a surprise attack to back us up, you know, and it's going to get really, really hairy and it's going to suck, but you it's the only way that, yeah. yeah, well, you just need to hold out until they get there and surprise the Boltons and then we're going to crush them. Um, and you know, John might not have gone for that. He might've gone for that. He might not have, but, uh, it certainly would have been, you know, at that point she knows the Knights of the Vale are coming regardless. Right. So she might as well tell him. Right. Um, and again, she's not a tactician, but yeah, it might have been nice to tell him. Then he might have misused the tool and not had the element of surprise. Because even with, I mean, what undoes him, what what, do, what does him in isn't just that he didn't have the forces. He walks right into them. I mean, it's just embarrassing. His entire there was no battle strategy, and then immediately gets surrounded. Even all the archers, you know, Dallas is like, screw it, whatever, and then just rushes in with a bunch of archers for some reason. Um, mm-hmm. Like that's not a strategy. That's not a plan. And so he he would have maybe lost because of numbers, but he didn't even get to try his plan out. So yeah. um, if he had had a bigger force, it might have happened the same way. Just because if it's two five thousand man armies, and you know one ends up enveloping the other, you know that army is going to win. Uh, at least that's my assumption in my extremely detailed understanding of military history. And in, in any case, so uh, then Ramsey bolts. <laughs> Ramsey bolts oh, for oof. the um so Ramsey's Ramsey's bolting for the uh for Winterfell. He, no, he, no. He, he he sort of locks himself up in there and decides we have Winterfell so it'll be fine. Doesn't count on the fact that there's a giant. Um <laughs> Yeah. I like that he's, he goes for the uh, river run strategy. He says, "Look, we'll just stay here and they don't and have we'll enough stay here. Which is true. He's not wrong, but you know, like Winterfell's not yeah river run and it's also definitely not the wall um yeah you know, a giant's gonna be able to get through it so then he uh he runs in uh one one has a great scene where he's breaking through the door it's a great scene it's very tragic and it's also like he's an mvp for suffering through like ripped hands and yada, oh yada. god yeah feels so bad for him um and so that's great um oh Tormund gets that good kill on the lieutenant guy and then bolts off after so they and then they all leave for the um for winterfell um mm-hmm. and then Sansa's interesting because she sees him she sees John run off and it seems kind of concerned uh, that he's going to do something rash and then he does and what's cool so this is the part where the um, uh, the Mormons come back into play because not only is his sword Longclaw which came from um, uh, the the Lord Commander he also uh, is the, with the shield he uses as he's blocking arrows from Ramsey is a Mormon shield Oh, which is really cool because yeah. it means that one of the twelve, what is it, twelve? I think it was like I think it was more than twelve, but it was like maybe fifty or something. Uh, it's, no, I thought it was like only twelve. I think it really was that. I don't remember. It was just very few. Anyway, one of them made it yeah. all the way to Winterfell, made it all the yeah. way to the end of that battle, which is exactly what she said. They're worth like you know ten other men, which you know maybe because clearly one of them made it. Mm, yeah. And then so it's cool. He's everything he's using is Mormon related, which is kind of cool. Um, just a sweet little a little touch, and they didn't need to. But if you look, if you freeze frame it, you can see on the shield he has um, it's the bear. Um, mm. So that's pretty cool. Uh, and then uh, he has that stupid again, another stupid scene. And this is like, this is like John Wick level stupid. <laughs> don't even, don't you dare, because I've, I've now it's funny that you said that because I loved this moment. <laughs> well, yeah, well it, it it's a it's a cool moment in in you know the emotion of it, but it's it's moronic. No, you don't get it. You know, I want to fight you one on one now. I've redis I've redecided. 
you know, I've, I've, re, I've remade my decision. No, you have. You get, like, no, you don't get that. Someone kill him. The idea of, like, underlings standing around while two people duke it out is so stupid. You would really risk them him killing Jon Snow yeah. right now. I mean, that's in everything. You know? It is in everything, yeah. and every time it happens, it's the dumbest thing that happens in the entire plot. It happens in John Wick. It's horrible. It's a hor- no. I don't want to spoil anything, but it's a moronic moment in the movie, and it's a moronic moment here, and it never makes any sense whatsoever. Like, and it's it's foolhardy on the part of the person who's doing it. it makes no sense on the part of their supporters unless they really have no allegiance whatsoever. They're like, whatever. If he dies, we'll just I don't know. Pff, who cares? Um, it just makes no sense. And well, here's what I here's what I liked about this is that Ramsey is uh, you know he's saying let's fight one on one but he's uh, he doesn't mean it obviously he's and what I like about it is that ultimately this is the perfect encapsulation of who he is as a character he's saying let's fight one on one and he takes up a ranged weapon right. and he starts to shoot at John from afar John has nothing to even fight with yep. or he can't even respond all he he's, a bit, he's basically saying to John you can't even get close to me yep. I'm and I'm gonna kill you yep. and then John's victory is that. He does get close to him. He blocks every yeah, but, single but, arrow. And then but again, this is all him. undercut by the fact that there's like literally 30 people around him who could kill him at any moment with an arrow at any time. Yeah, I didn't care. It was cool. <laughs> you know, it, it was cool, that's but That's one exactly, of those things that, like, like I said, it, it happens so often in just anything that I just kind of That's not to, an argument, like, though. <laughs> Tropes happen no, all the I mean, time. I'm not saying so, it's an whatever. argument, but it's like... You know, if 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 it bothered me every time that happened, then I would be bothered in everything I watched. And at this point, it's like, uh, you know what? Okay, uh, you know, it's it's dumb, but like you made you you made good enough use of that moment that I'm willing to excuse it. The moment that you uh, drew out of that stupidity is effective enough that I'll excuse this stupidity. It's the kind of thing that you know. In so what happens in Spartacus is they'll see someone from across the battlefield and they'll be like, you know pricks or whatever and they'll yell, yell at each other and then they'll you know sort of walk up to each other and have a fight but inevitably someone will come and stab the, the character that you know you're this you're really invested in this and someone will end up stabbing one of them in the back or something because in a battle no one's just going to sit around and wait for you to have your little personal tiff with someone obviously not that wouldn't make any sense so i don't know i'm i'm i i like the idea that this could have ended from i would have been fine if like as john's about to walk up and do this, his men decide to just fill Ramsey with arrows. That would have been fine. I didn't need the stupid dog scene. I didn't need the rest of it. It's whatever. Um, I actually, I would have liked, honestly, what I really wanted in the scene and what I wanted from the beginning was Sansa to kill Ramsey, like, straight up, you know, to maybe as, or that would be better. Okay, so forget about it. Forget about his men, you know, filling him with arrows. Um, have Sansa just, you know, walk up and stab him. Why not through the back of the head like we've had every other character die this season? Um, <laughs> just to, to prevent John from even getting there. So we don't have the scene where he's punching him. We don't have the dog scene. It's just not necessary. Oh, yeah. let's talk, well, let's talk about the punching because we talked about this a little bit earlier. Uh, and the weirdness of this moment is this bothered me more than, you know, the arrow stuff because, you know, first of all, let's talk about this. Break this down. Uh, first of all, he punches him for about 10 minutes. Yep. Um, and it's kind of, it makes me wonder what they were thinking with this because like, okay, you know what they often, what they so often, you know, do on the show, we talk about it with Joffrey specifically, um, is that they'll have a character who's kind of bad, but when they kill them, they'll make it so horrible, uh, that you're like, oh wow, that's really horrible. Like Joffrey's the great example, um, of his death just went on for so, so, so long that you just couldn't kind of help but be if not sympathetic, at least kind of, uh, you know, it was hard to enjoy it. Um, 
But it, here's the thing. Uh, this moment doesn't do that, but it's clearly what they were trying for, because as we've talked about all season, as we've talked about every time we've even talked about Ramsey, um, everything that Ramsey did this season was set up for his, this moment. Everything he yep. did, killing Asha, you know, feeding... Uh, um, By the way, aren't you um, so glad they lady... kept Asha and Rickon alive just so they could die this season? Yeah, ki- yeah exactly. Killing Rickon, feeding um, uh, Lady Bolton to the wool, to the dogs. Uh, everything was set up for this one moment of what was supposed to be catharsis where he finally gets what was coming to him. But it doesn't play. It doesn't work for me at all, And even though it no, should. No, but I don't think it, it is, though. That's just it. First of all, he's not... It's not like the pure terror you see on Joffrey's face. He's laughing through it. Um, well, that's the that's the that's the other weird. Thing. You know, I I, I certainly want to get to that because that's bizarre, and I think they were going for something that doesn't make any sense. But my real my point first first of all is that um, the the scene doesn't have any cathartic value because first of all, but I, we, again, we I don't think it's happen. necessarily supposed to. That's my point. I think it's absolutely supposed to. Yeah. I think you're supposed to be sitting there and being like, yeah, he's finally getting hit. It, after everything he's done, he's finally getting what's coming to him. And, you know, the scene, the second scene with Sansa is obviously the, the conclusion. It, well, I think it does that much more effectively. Well, and that's, well, that's but, what um, it's, but that's the one that's actually supposed to be. Here, I think okay, this is this more about Okay, but if this wasn't supposed John. to be that, then why did it go on for so long? This is more long? about John. This, uh, whole sequence no. is, this whole sequence is about John. Sansa's horrified by what he's doing. John realizes every single decision he's made in this battle has been absolutely terrible. But is John? I don't know if Sansa's horrified. That's the other. Well, that's we'll get to that. She's, it's also confusing. She's. I don't know. She seems to be. She seems to be kinda, not terribly happy. I mean, she's concerned with him. But and it's all connected, right? It's she's concerned with seeing him run off to Winterfell to chase Ramsay. She's like, wow. Even still, he's. You know, who knows if Ramsay has another trap set. Uh, and also, he's not op- he's not thinking. He's working based on emotion. He comes in, he does this stupid one-on-one fight, which is just strategically moronic. And then, even more, it then goes beyond that to like start wailing on him and doing again, taking away Sansa's, you know, ability to to to, to kill Ramsay if he if he kept going, and also just being an like just being completely animalistic, um, which is not who John supposedly is. And so I think that. Sansa's not into this version of John, and I think it, it's it's sort of a, mm. it's a turnoff. Well, here's the weird thing. Let's let's talk about that then, because I, I, I and I think by the way, the animal comparison is very important because that's exactly what the final moment is. John's not an animal. If he acts like an animal, that's Sansa's sort of seeing a little bit of Ramsay in him. Not like oh, he's like Ramsay, nothing like that, but. Like, Ramsey's the animal, and Ramsey's so much of an animal, he seems to only relate in the world to only one thing, and that is his dogs. And that's why when <laughs> the dogs turn on him, he's so horrified, because he's, it's the first time he's horrified, because he's like, you know, we're the same. You know, we're animals. Why, you know, why would you turn on me? We've, we're, you're loyal to me because I have power over you, obviously. He's still into that power dynamic, but we're, we are kin. He's not kin with anyone else. He doesn't care about his family. He doesn't care about his sibling. He doesn't care. He doesn't care about anything except for his, like, his dogs are the only thing he cares about. And when they turn on him, that's the big moment where he, you know, it's his animal brethren turning on him. And I think that's what Sansa's turned off by is. John exploring his animal side of just you know wailing on him. I think that's the. But issue. that's the thing. That, that's my thing. It's like I don't think the scene communicates that at all. Really? And I think that that I think that that's the scene. What the scene wants you to get out of it, but all that really happens is like, you know, here's the thing. It is using kind of 
the way it is using our familiarity with scenes like this to suggest that that's what's what's going on but i don't think it's doing anything of its own volition to actually communicate that all that happens is that uh, john's beating him and he looks over and sansa's standing there and he decides to stop sansa doesn't really look give him any sort of particular look sansa doesn't do any particular gesture doesn't really do anything other than stand there and i and i think you're right to kind of draw this implication of you know i think it's actually a pretty astute observation what you're saying about um how john has acted throughout the entire battle and how sansa's looked at that i think you're right um but i don't think that this particular moment is you know but if you believe that then really this is anything. the culmination of that this is the ultimate expression of just emotional no, I, rage but I was, that's what I'm saying. I, I think that you are right to read that into it. I'm not. I'm not sure that this this moment itself is actually like you know doing anything in particular to express that. Interesting. I don't know. I don't know if I don't know if that makes sense. But uh, what's weirder about this scene for me? Um, I, I guess. I guess you know. Okay. I, I think you're probably right. Um, <laughs> And not to like, not to admit that I'm wrong and and, and jump off, but <laughs> don't don't ruin your brand, man. <laughs> um, what's weird about this scene for me is actually a similar issue uh, that maybe you'll agree with is that is Ramsey's whole thing where he's smiling throughout this. Yeah. Because usually it's again it's 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 relying on our familiarity with scenes like this, um, but I don't think it wants to communicate that in this instance. Well, usually what we're supposed to get out of this is that the you know it's a moment where the villain is like ah you're just like me yeah you're you're just as violent as me but like Sansa and or um sorry Ramsay and John ha- don't have that relationship or any relationship to speak of. Uh, there there has been no moment in the past even in this earlier episode where John uh Ramsay was like oh John you're you think I'm so evil but you're just as evil as me um and there's nothing that you know there's not even anything to base that in even if you wanted to. Um, so this moment where he's like, or he's smiling as John is. I don't think it's that. I, I really don't think it's that. I think, I think it's a. I think he's smiling because he's, he's happy he got he got under John's skin. Maybe it's as simple as that. He could, uh, it could be because maybe. he's happy that mm. John is acting that way because he knows Sansa's watching. Could be that because he clearly he definitely has a personal relationship with her. Um, I'm not sure if he would. Why know would he that be happy that Sansa that. was seeing that? What? Why would he be happy that Sansa was seeing that? Um. Because she's tried to, you know, because her, his view of her is that her worldview is that people aren't like him and that he's like the anomaly and the weird one and the, you know, crazy one and the animal one. And so that her own brother is doing this, um, maybe just to guess. Hmm. But I think it's really just ultimately that he was able to piss uh, John off and that John also wasn't willing to just kill him in the moment. He decided to punch him instead well he's beating him to death i mean that's pretty clear that he's he could have gone farther and just straight up killed him um but what's weird about this for me is that like and i mean i guess i i guess what you're saying is true but like if that's the case i'm just guessing it's like it was like good for you ramsey you made him mad you lost congratulations i don't know what you're so happy about you didn't really prove anything you lost well i mean yeah he's he's also like not all there you know he's well yeah i mean (laughs) I guess get so. it. Let's get into but Ramsey's head because we haven't done that enough. Oh uh, yeah, I mean, ultimately, I think it's, it's the it's the show kind of indulging in this cliche uh, of just because of the, of the yeah of the sadistic villain smiling as as he's being beaten. Yeah, just because not really because it has any significance to what we know about Ramsey and John or even you know Ramsey and Sansa. Um, and I think you can probably read stuff onto it, um, but. You know, ultimately, I don't really think it means anything, and it's just kind I of think another the weird clue, thing for Ramsey to do. I think Ramsey the clue ultimately comes from the next scene where we see what the only thing that seems to have ever shaken him. Ever, I think. 
Aside from his friend dying, or his whatever the. Oh yeah, Miranda. Why do you remember that? <laughs> I don't oh, know. Oh yeah, Miranda. Oh, what a great character. Oh jeez. <laughs> oh man, I miss her so much. Too bad she's not on the show anymore. I'm not trying to disparage the character at all. It's just funny, like of all characters. No, I mean you you're right. <laughs> well, meanwhile, we're like, who is it? Was it Tywin? Tywin Lance? Um. But anyway, so uh, but this is a cool scene. And by the way, they used up their a little bit more of the CGI budget on uh, rendering this dog to do this entire sequence. And this is the first time Although, we've this, actually this seen the real... dogs like go. This out could have been a real thing. dog, though, right? I mean, mm. I don't think there's any reason this couldn't have been a real dog. It looked fake to me. They don't look like any species of dog I've ever seen. That's the weird part about them. I mean, yeah, that's I don't know about specific species. You're right. They do just kind of look like when you picture in your head a dog. That's kind of the image you come up with. They're just kind of a generic dog. dog. Yeah. Um, but like it the also dictionary definition of gets dog. Up and... But the thing is, what's interesting about this, this is the first time we see the dogs doing what they do. Usually it cuts away, and we just hear the audio, and the first time we actually see it. Well, that's my thing with the scene, though. It, it does that here, too. I mean, we see oh, it. In, it does. We see, first, the initial... we see it first, and then it cuts away, yeah. We see the initial bite, which is great. The build-up to it, first of all, yeah, the build-up to it is great. Uh, with him kind of locked in his cage, and Sansa doesn't like. What I like about this it's is it's the Sansa same scene; in... it's just in reverse. Yeah, Sansa isn't engaging in his mind game. She's not kind of. She doesn't stoop to the level that like. Uh, often the way that the scene would be written is that. Um, she would stoop to his level, and she would kind of try to play the victory. You know, the, the, she would assume his power di- role in the power dynamic. Yeah, sure. And he Pretend would pretend to let him that go more... or something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she would claim, and he would claim that as a moral victory, like we were talking yeah, about exactly, earlier. Yeah. Like he would say, "Ah, you see, you've sunk to my level. You're just as bad as me." But she doesn't Something do that. Like she that. just says, "You know, she just says, yeah, like, hey, you know, you've lost, and you suck, and everyone's gonna forget you. You know, yep, shrug." And um, by the way, here's your dogs. And you're right. This is the first moment where he's shaken, and he's and he's like, "Oh, they're not gonna eat me." They and she's like, "Oh, well, you did say they were really hungry, though." Yeah. And she walks away. And the only thing I don't like about this scene is that they cut away from it. Because that actually was like, I was vaguely offended by the fact that they cut away from this. I was like, really? After the countless scenes that we've had to sit through of Ramsay enacting brutal punishment, since we first met him in the series, right. you have not shied away from the horrible things Ramsay has done to people. But it has but now cut that away it's his from turn, usually. Not really. I mean... We didn't see the happen it, it, to Theon. We didn't see what happened to the like the hunting. We in don't the see it happen, but like we, we but we, like we. I watch, don't think it's very different you know, than this. It, no, but it indulge. I think it indulges in the violence, like with Asha. You know, I don't and, think this. I'll say this. Rickon. I don't think it makes up for the thirty, you know, forty, fifty <laughs> freaking scenes we had to see no. of this, or even just season three alone. Uh, you know, yeah. not at all. But you know, it's certainly. It was just weird to me that to like this was the. Them. Like it was weird to me that this is the moment where they decided to show some restraint because it's not even yeah it's not even like you know the camera kind of uh, it's not even like the camera is just kind of hiding the gory parts but we're still watching right. they just straight up don't show it yeah. they just and the only thing that I like about this is when is the fantastic moment where Sansa starts to turn away but then she's like eh, I'll watch a little bit more. yeah yeah <laughs> I mean that was it's great. awesome and I and I think what she says is really important too because you know. Not to get into the the whole, you know, there's a whole psychology to it and and the whole discussion around that. But you know, what he did to her is something that's you know, like in the real world and everything. Like that's that's something that never really leaves you. But by telling him, 
with very serious like i don't know if she believes that deep down but telling him like you no one's gonna remember you and whether or not i remember you is irrelevant because as far as i'm concerned i'm not remembering you you know i'm going to make it a point of never talking about or remembering you uh and certainly no one else is going to talk about or remember you and then you'll be dead and gone and no one will ever know you you know existed again and then basically forcing fatalism on him immediately so he just has to immediately think about his impending death and how he's left absolutely no mark on the world whatsoever um yeah. and just uh, like all at once and then not giving him time to sort of reconcile that and come back and be like well you're never gonna really shake what happened to you and you're never gonna you know he doesn't she doesn't give him that time at all because he immediately gets killed and i think that that's great because he basically dies with that sense of complete fear and you know abject terror on his face mm. um so yeah, I, I know that sounds really awful, but I, I the point is really for her to say, you know, I'm not going to let you have power over me in this. Yeah. You know, after you die or the fact, you know, it just it's gone, it's done, and um, yep. you're meaningless in the grand scope of the history of this world. Uh, and I'm I was thrilled that they gave her this moment because actually, like, I was starting to worry as this episode went on that. Um, that that she wouldn't get, that that John would kill him. I was really she, worried too. The, I was like, you better. Yeah. He didn't do anything to you. He did things to people you love. Yep. But he did nothing to you. This is not fair. Especially after Rickon died, I was so worried that they would like that. That would be like the justification for John delivering the killing blow. Oh God, I would be so um, mad. Yeah. And actually, it ma- that, this makes me look back to that scene I was I was criticizing a second ago, which is like, this almost makes me feel like Sansa saying to John, like, ease up. I want to get the last hit on him. <laughs> yeah. Um, and John's like, you know what? And you know, it. you know, maybe this is a little bit of the, just a little bit, him listening to her from earlier, you know? What does Sansa think about this? Maybe Sansa would like to her, have her own turn at this. Hmm, maybe I should consider her feelings and thoughts on the mm-hmm. matter instead of just doing what I want to do. And I mean, like, someone decided that this is what was going to happen. Someone had Ramsay tied up in the cages. Someone had the dogs there. Yeah. You know, Who knows? so clearly, I think it's I think it's very clear that Sansa orchestrated this, and John was like, "Okay." Well, I mean, John, <laughs> you, you John do what you do. Have known what, how to set any of that up, you know? Yeah, conceptually, um, because you know she's seen it happen or has been privy to it in some form or another. Um, but yeah, so yeah, that's the whole episode. We finally got through it. Uh, only two and a half hours later. Wow, this is probably our longest podcast, right? Probably. I don't know if anyone's going to listen to it. You could probably watch Lord of the Rings <laughs> instead, but. Well, people listen to our shorter ones inexplicably, so... <laughs> I'll, I'll never understand that. Um, we'll try not to do this in the future, but this episode begged for... Although, of course, <laughs> next episode of the show is the longest. The the longest in the in the show's history, so... Woohoo! So, uh... We'll keep that one to about 15 minutes. Um. <laughs> yeah, we'll just... Yeah, exactly. Um, so what's... Uh, what is the next episode? The next one is... Oh, I can't even remember. Um, oh, of course, The Winds of Winter. The Winds of Winter, yeah. Which is a, it is another example of like you know spitting in the face of book fans because if you don't know this is the title of the yet to be released sixth book in the series exactly. Um, so this is just a great capper to the uh, entire concept of the sixth season of the show coming out before the book it's adapt you know nominally adapted yep. from. The fact that they are naming the finale after the book, just like it's just like I kiss my fingers like a chef like beautiful. <laughs> and also, uh, Winds of Winter um, was mentioned in uh, the play earlier on in this in this season too. So yes, that's right. Um, they've, so. they've already been sort of cheeky with that, but uh, yeah. Oh, I'm looking and forward you know, to that. we should probably talk about you know the actual you know in universe significance of this. Uh, I guess winter is going to actually happen. Oh yeah, 
winter it will finally have come <laughs> by that point i assume yeah it's gonna be a lot of snowy episodes next season um mm-hmm. so next week we have to look forward to probably wildfire and uh, explosions in the capital i'm assuming and maybe oh, some, yes. some I... moving forward of the hounds plot line and probably nothing about sam until next season yeah oh yeah i guess so yep. I, I forgot about sam but most <laughs> importantly no dorn oh my god <gasps> Can you I, believe I that was the last time we've do. seen Dorn? I think we might not ever see them again. I don't know what I'll do. I will. I will like. I will. I will jump out a window if there's a Dorn scene next episode. I will be. I don't know what I'll do. Like it's just been so beautiful to not have Dorn. It's just been like the perfect vision of of Game of Thrones. <laughs> world without Dorn. Just cutting Dorn out. You know, it's funny. Um, one last, one last, very brief thing. The thing we thought might happen from the books that they hadn't done that oh, someone the, has uh, for me the, 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 the thing related to the hound and oh yeah yeah, yeah, yeah okay so um, I was reading about uh, uh, some people think that that's less likely now because of that whole sequence with Daenerys and Yara and all of them talking about sort of supplanting the old generation and how that would sort of be like that theme would be sort of counteracted if they ended up having this other character show up because it's it's not really about the younger generation taking over so it's it's just an, it's just an, it's an interesting it's an uh, it was an interesting sort of i hadn't considered connected those two things because they're very disparate but if that is going to be the theme of the show of younger and predominantly female people taking over the seven kingdoms and i could see how they might be like yeah maybe not um uh, you still feeling maybe. it you're still feeling it i mean i mean there's nothing in this episode to me that it's not over. It's not plot-wise. It's just sort of thematic. Yeah. Well, but there's, yeah, but there's nothing that con- I'm still feeling the plot that we talked about so hard. That I mean, I guess, but like, I, I think it might have it might have more relevance than maybe you're giving it. Um, and I don't know the plot very well at all. Like, I, possibly, I heard someone sort of possibly spoil it. But for I me mean, not. you know, yeah. but but I mean, my my real problem with this, even though they are, like I said, pretty close to revealing get, getting this plot point out, is that. Uh, it, I worry that like it's been it, it kind of won't matter at this point just because it's been so long since the opportunity when they were supposed to have done it. Right. Um, they could just so, fold it know, into like the big showdown with the White Walkers and just make that a thing. Maybe it, it's still like pretty you know. I wouldn't be surprised if they did it just based on what they've built up, but at this point, I almost don't want them to because it's just been too long. Yeah, no, I get that. I get that, and I honestly, I since I don't know the storyline at all, I don't really particularly care. I like what they've done so far with the show, so. <laughs> but anyway, all right. So next time, winds of winter. Winds of winter. All right. Talk to you. Then.